the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for the Steak for Breakfast Podcast. It's Friday, August 11th, 2023, and this is the Steak for Breakfast Podcast, episode 264. Make sure you subscribe to the show. It's available across every downloadable podcasting platform. Find us on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Check out the Steak for Breakfast link tree that will take the show's Instagram, our latest Substack, and verified accounts on Twitter, Getter, and True Social. Welcome, everybody. We've got a big Friday edition of the show today. I'm Roan. Supply chain expert Jim Nels is going to be in the co-host. We've got a great slate of guests coming in here as well. D.C. Young Republican Club National Committee woman Kingsley Cortez is going to be joining us. Former Chief of Staff to Capitol Hill, Jim Paff will be here as well. Former Trump White House Attorney, Andrew Closter will be joining us. And we'll be sitting down with Constitutional Attorney and Trump lawyer, Jesse Banal. A lot of breaking news. We said we were going to bring you some highlights from Donald Trump's stop in New Hampshire earlier in the week. We're going to cover some of the Newsmax sit-down he had with Eric Bowling as well. The Biden investigation ramps up and Hunter Biden gets assigned to special counsel. And we'll play a little 2024 presidential primary roundup. But before we get to any of the headlines, let's take it over to the nation's capital and change the way you consume your news. Smokey, this is not Nam, this is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior! America! Steak. For breakfast! So stand by! All right, big Friday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast here. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. If you're a long-time listener, welcome back to America's fastest-growing political podcast and getting things started today to kick off our show. He's a constitutional attorney who heads the Benal Law Group. I kind of spoiled it, but we're always happy to sit down with Mr. Jesse Benal. Jesse, thanks for starting the show today with us today. Always happy to be here. Well, we did have some developments, and, and we do like to put it out there for our listenership. You are not working directly on any of these cases that we're going to be referencing, but we do want no. your constitutional opinion on some of them, as you do represent President Trump in some of his dealings here. We've had some developments in the January 6th-related case. We know there was a very short amount of time given to President Trump to make a presentation on protective order materials regarding like social media and stuff like that. As you watch this unfold today in court, Jesse, what's the latest you could tell our listenership? Well, let me tell you, I think the uh, most shocking thing that happened is uh, I think the judge in the case, uh, Judge uh, Chutkin, kind of said the quiet part out loud. And she basically said um, regarding President Trump's um, First Amendment rights to, to participate in a presidential campaign, in the most important presidential campaign in our nation's history, I'll, I'll add to that, um, that she doesn't really care about his uh, First Amendment rights because he's a criminal defendant. And so the administration of justice um, is going to take precedence to the selection of the next president of the United States, in her mind. And let's just be real about what exactly this means. Uh, it's only President Trump that is going to, to have a, uh, a federal judge overseeing what he can say and what he cannot say during his campaign. That is unprecedented in America. It is It flies against the very uh, notion of the First Amendment, where our founders wanted to get away from uh, prior restraints on speech of about having to get permission to speak on matters of public importance. 
And quite frankly, the most important issue that I think the voters are going to decide this election on is the weaponization of our justice system. So if she tries to limit what President Trump can say about that, then it's going to be, I think, one of the biggest judicial scandals in this country's history. I am very, very concerned about what she said. I think that she, like Jack Smith, wants to have a hand in deciding who the next president of the United States is. They don't really care about uh, this case all this much. They want to make sure Donald Trump is not elected, and they don't trust the American voters to do it, so they want to do it themselves. They want to play They want to play the, the role of, of kingmaker here, uh, truly, is, is what they want to do, and it's just absolutely infuriating to watch. Jesse, how do you hypothesize that Donald Trump is able to navigate these new stipulations to his case? And moving forward, I'm going to I'm going to ask you about the uh, the Georgia one in just a second. But staying with right here, this, the, you know, this judge is setting, a, you know, a premise now to be able to not only do this to people like Donald Trump, but any other kind of defendant who the federal government says because of your political views or how, you know, you're an influential member in the America First community, they want to be able to silence you while you're being put on trial in in instances of hoaxes and witch hunts like a lot of these things are. Yeah. And I mean, let me just say that that's why we are so lucky that Donald Trump is the man that he is, uh, because he I believe he is still going to uh, confront this head on and unafraid, just like he always has in the past. He's not going to be distracted. He's going to go out talking about the issues uh, that are important to um, to the American people here. And um and then, you know, while letting his his lawyers handle the the legal issues and, and the case, and I think there's a number of, of very important legal issues that are going to need to be decided that um, uh, should should take some time to, to resolve. I just think that uh, Jack Smith and, and Judge Chutkin are going to do everything they can to get this done before the election, so that they can they can try to do everything they can to take the choice away from the American people. Um, I think ultimately that's going to fail. I think ultimately Donald Trump's going to be the next president, and I think that uh, we're going to have some very very serious accountability um, because people like Jack Smith. And Tanya Chuck, and they hate Donald Trump so much because he's the first person to stand up to the Washington establishment. And these are two people that have made their careers with the Washington establishment. And they want Washington, D.C. to impose who the uh, who the president and who is going to govern the American people rather than letting the American people make that decision. Hey, Jesse, it's Jim Nels. Follow a question on that. What can the judge legally do to Trump? Because let's be honest. Um, Trump's not going to stop talking. So he's yep. going to put the judge in a, in a position where she's going to have to either ignore her own, her own order or is going to have to do something to Trump. What are her legal recourses if he just keeps talking the way we all expect him to? Well, um, I mean, her recourse would be um, contempt, theoretically, uh, is that she could decide that, you know, Donald Trump says something on the campaign trail that she doesn't like and she could hold him in contempt. And by doing that, she could revoke uh, his his bond uh and and you know hold him in dc central jail is is what she could theoretically try to do um now i think the outcry would be enormous if she tried to do that sure and i think that more reasonable sober uh, judicial minds and the courts above her would probably put a quick into that um but that is theoretically what she could try to do i think it's important to say that 
Um, you know, President Trump has always abided by uh, by court orders in the past. I think he will do that uh, now. And, I, and so I think that there's no danger um, that he's going to go out and, and violate any court orders. I think the danger is uh, that Judge Chutkin um, overreads her own orders and, and uh, tries to find some excuse to do that. That's something I think we should be on the lookout for. Uh, but we'll just we'll uh, you know, have to wait to see how that that plays out. Jesse, there's no coincidence here that these judges and Merrick Garland, who's directing all of them, you know, the special counsels included, waited nearly three years to kick off indicting Donald Trump and then getting these cases rolled out because, I mean, we're getting ready to uh, walk into the Iowa State Fair this weekend, which is the unofficial official actual start of the 2024 primary season. But, you know, you're dragging him in to court today, uh, you know, President Trump's lawyers, when they're supposed to be getting on a plane and going with the president over to Iowa. And, and I just don't understand why we couldn't come up with this. You know, the January 6th committee was supposed to be the end-all, tell-all story of how Donald Trump tried to steal back the election from the voters, and that completely flopped. And now they roll it into these cases. And by the time we actually get to, you know, deliberating inside of a courtroom, we're going to be over three years and months away from people going to the ballot box in the presidential primary before we start getting any kind of depositions here and dispositions regarding these cases. Yeah, that and that's their plan. They, what they've wanted to do um, all along is try to uh, distract from this presidential campaign on, on you know, these issues uh, uh, surrounding January 6th. And let's be real, the average American doesn't care about uh, about those particular issues. What they care about, um, yeah, you know, is inflation. What they care about is the weaponization of government against conservatives. They care about those things much more than they than they care about these issues. But one thing that, that both the uh, you know the unselect committee, as the president likes to say, and the um, uh, the special counsel um, office has been able to do is. Um, essentially investigate not only President Trump, but a number of his uh, campaign staff, a number of his supporters. It's been a huge distraction. It's been a big money draw. And that's that's uh, that was, I believe, their exact plan all along, because they know that the process is the punishment. This is their goal, to try to bleed his campaign dry, to try to distract his supporters, to try to distract his campaign staff and everyone else around him um, to try to make it more difficult for him to, to win because they're so terrified of his return to office. And the way that they've tried to demonize him in so many different, I like to call it like the Fifty Shades of MAGA so when they yeah. raided Mar-a-Lago yeah. with the document case, right? So Donald Trump was committing espionage. He was essentially a spy. Then you have now the January 6th case that's coming up with the special counsel. And he was an insurrectionist. Essentially, he's a Confederate general trying to steal back, you know, the country from the voters. Now you have Fannie Davis down in Georgia getting ready to set up some kind of a RICO case trial there. So now Donald Trump's going to be like the mob boss. And it's like th they continue to push out these fake narratives on on things that he didn't do and make him look just worse to potential voters in the American people. It's got to be able to come to an end. Do you think by the time Donald Trump gets to these cases, whether it's final dip uh, dispositions in court or the eventual appeals process, we're done here? Or if Donald Trump wins back the White House next year, we're just getting started? Uh, I think that they are going to fight back against him, regardless if he's a candidate or regardless if he's president. Um, the the uh, all along the way because he's a threat to bureaucratic power in this country, and I mean let me um, you know uh, Politico not exactly a right wing publication um, pointed out today that every single case on the docket in D.C. District Court today 
was a case against Trump supporters or conservatives. Every single case. Now, let's remember, this is D.C., you know, a huge crime problem, homelessness problem, drug problem um, uh, with everything going on in D.C. Every case in, in the courtroom today, in the courthouse today, was against Trump or Trump supporters. Um, and so when you uh, the, add on to that, the, like you said, that you've got the Fannie Willis uh, case that uh, we expect, I think, is, is probably going to drop. Um, next week, they are just bound and determined to, no matter what, try to get him. And if it was a lesser man, um, I can see them wanting to, you know, to to just go home or, as President said, you know, go up to the to the south of France to enjoy his retirement. Um, but luckily, there's nobody more determined than Donald Trump. And I think in the end, he is going to beat these um, these bureaucrats. And when he does that, that means we get back the, the country that our founders gave us, that the, the country of our of the Constitution is of form by the people, not of form by the bureaucrats. Oh, that's a that's a perfect example right there. And then last thing I want to touch with you on, Jesse, it's kind of breaking news here on the show today. How shocked, and I'm rolling my eyes, are you to see that U.S. Attorney General in Delaware, David Weiss, one of the person or people who uh, kind of just sat idly by as Hunter Biden got his almost sweetheart deal passed in federal court a few weeks ago before it fell through. The guy that oversaw that is now going to be overseeing his special counsel. He was appointed by Merrick Garland this morning, obviously, to uh, kind of under highlight in the media the stuff that went down in dc federal court regarding president trump today but listen you can't make this stuff up the guy who was completely inept to do anything to find anything wrong with hunter biden outside of the you know work that the house republicans are doing right now is now going to be leading his special counsel into his international business dealings yeah yeah no that's right um and uh, i mean let's call this what it is what it's so obvious to everybody else this is a slow motion cover-up um, a special counsel should have been appointed uh, at least two years ago. Probably, you know, uh, truth be told, Barr should have appointed a special counsel three years ago yep. uh, in, into this n investigation. And at this point, um, they should recognize what everyone else has recognized, uh, which is the primary target here is not Hunter Biden. It is Joe Biden. Um, and the special counsel uh, appointment should have specifically referred to that because we now have um, these uh, these business dealings and the phone calls with Joe Biden on speaker uh, phone. And, you know, let's they, they love to talk about Russia so much. Let's talk about, you know, the, the one Russian oligarch who escaped sanctions just happened to be uh, the widow of the mayor of Moscow, um, who uh, uh, former mayor of Moscow. Um, and and she was on on one of those calls. Uh, just just shocking. So it looks like there very well may be official action on this. Um, from um, fr uh, from Joe Biden as president, that he may have taken uh, official action during his presidency um, for money that uh, that Hunter Biden received and went into the the Biden family uh, before his his presidency. So this is uh, the biggest bribery scandal that I think any president has ever faced in the history of the republic, um, and the uh, the the slow motion cover up is just disgusting. It certainly is. What wasn't disgusting was the fire commentary that you provided for our listenership on the show today, Jesse. We really appreciate when you take the time to come down and share with us. We'll be looking forward to having you on the show again. We're going to live link the law office and your website in the show description today. But for anyone that's not following you on social media, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter and Truth at, at @jbinall. J-B-I-N-N-A-L-L. Always fighting for the Constitution and America first. This is Attorney Jesse Benall. Thanks for getting us started here on Steak for Breakfast. Thanks for having me.
They waited. And I probably have another one. They say there's a young woman, uh, a young racist in Atlanta. Say racist. And they say, I guess they say that she was after a certain gang and she ended up having an affair with the head of the gang or a gang member. And this is a person that wants to indict me. She's got a lot of problems, but she wants to indict me to try and run for some other office. Uh, what's going on in this country is, uh, and by the way, wants to indict me for a perfect phone call. This was even better than my perfect call with Ukraine. The Ukraine exchange there, it's like watching the open of an old Tucker Carlson show. He's not there anymore, but that's what it is. And these are busy people. These are hardworking people. Uh, there are too many Democrats who want to say they're deplorables or, you know, why talk to these people? Uh, there are millions of them. Uh, this is a family that literally is, is an economic anchor in the community. The business started in the basement, employs 80 people. The new solar company employs 15 people in a part of the country that has been devastated economically and challenged economically the last 25 years. They're good people. They raise money for the Girl Scouts. They go to church. But they believe things that would break our fact-check machine. That's just a fact. And they don't trust us. They think we're part of the problem. Yeah. And the others are at, like, 12. One is at 12. I think that's the sanctimonious. But he's rapidly being caught by... Ramishwamy, who's good? No, no, Christie's he's eating right now. He can't be bothered. <laughs> Sir, please do not call him a fat pig. That's very disrespectful. Don't call him. See, I'm, I'm trying to be nice. Don't call him a fat pig. You can't do it. All right, kicking off the news portion of this show. Big Friday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. Great starting off with Jesse Benal, having him in. Always great catching up and, and getting the absolute latest on some of the legal stuff going on with President Trump, especially with the developments today uh, with regarding the protection order and stuff like that out of the January 6th case. And as I mentioned, to kick off the show today as well, supply chain expert, great friend of the program. Well, he's pretty much a main staple on, on, on One American News now as well. Jim Nels is with us co-hosting today. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, happy Aloha Friday. You say it like that, but uh, neither of us are wearing Hawaiian shirts. That is true. I've got my Aloha underwear on, so I'm okay. Jim, catch our listenership up real quick on all the stuff you've been doing. You guest hosted not too long ago an entire week for Karen McKinney over there on her show. You also do a weekly segment there. You're writing uh, op-eds left and right, and then you have a day job as well. So catch our listenership up on everything that's going on on your end. Yeah, so I had a great time out at OAN, uh, guest hosting Tipping Point a couple of weeks ago. The the folks out there were amazing. And then every Friday, I'm on um, their fourth segment with my Everything is Stupid weekly news wrap-up to show that, in fact, everything is stupid. We got a really good one today. Uh, I'll give a little preview. Chef Kamala Harris is going to toss us a word salad complete with croutons and a lovely creamy Caesar dressing. So I think everybody will enjoy that one. <laughs> and uh, I just had an article about uh, why the left hates words published in American Greatness this week. So that was fun. And just continue to, to write and keep getting the good word out to everybody. Well, great to have you in here today. It's hard playing Chewbacca to Noah. And, you know, with me being the hand solo, you are probably a lot more handsomer than I am in real life. But here's the thing. This is our Millennium Falcon, and we're glad you're co-piling it with us today here on this Friday edition of Steak for Breakfast. So we promised on our Tuesday edition of the show, Donald Trump was just taking the stage in New Hampshire. We're going to bring you a couple highlights from that. The speaking event he had there, uh, Caroline Levitt gave us a great preview on our last edition of the show right before she jumped behind stage with him. And, you know, he, he came out hitting pretty hard. Fannie Davis, the J6 committee, um, all of these, 
you know, indictments that are coming down against him. And then we'll segue a little bit. I got a couple clips, maybe I think at least one from the Eric Bowling sit down that Donald Trump did this week on Newsmax. So we'll hear the latest on that. I know everybody is kind of, uh, you know, in a tussle over Donald Trump's reaction to the loyalty pledge and whether or not he's going to do the first debate. Um, I talked to uh, a couple of people on the Trump team. Uh, you know, today following the revelations in court, we also have some breaking news on the show today, this Friday edition, the steak for breakfast. We're seeing Merrick Garland has taken the Delaware U.S. Attorney General who didn't do anything to Hunter Biden there and appointed him to be the special counsel into investigating his international business dealings. So as that's kind of unfolding today, if anything relevant comes across the wire other than the sweetheart deal for Hunter Biden and the Biden crime family continues, you know, we'll bring it up and uh, chat about it a little mm -hmm. bit. Donald Trump was talking about his own indictments in New Hampshire this week and, and was going in hard. Let's hear this one. How can my corrupt political opponent, crooked Joe Biden, put me on trial during an election campaign that I'm winning by a lot, but forcing me nevertheless to spend time and money away from the campaign trail in order to fight bogus, made-up accusations and charges? That's what they're doing. I'm sorry, I won't be able to go to Iowa today. I won't be able to go to New Hampshire today because I'm sitting in a courtroom on bullshit because his attorney general charged me with something. Terrible. Well, you could tell that the crowd there was pretty much aligned with the way President Trump feels about his current legal cases. Jim, when, when you see Donald Trump appearing now stronger than he did maybe even in the last election cycle when he got 74 million votes in his second attempt to reclaim the White House, and as he's going through what we're calling here on the show more of a coronation process and the eventual three-peat than the actual Republican primary, to see him out at the grassroots level, and I think it's very smart that he's doing less rallies now and more of these intimate GOP-led events in states with his re-election delegation teams and seeing how the people are reacting to everything that's going on in his life, in addition to the Agenda 47 message, how are you seeing this shape up? Boy, I tell you, I, I just wish Trump had a little bit of passion when he talked. He, he reminds <laughs> me so much of, you know, Mitt Romney or maybe even Al Gore, but... Uh, oh. <laughs> Seriously, the, the guy, he, you know, he just keeps going and going and going. Um, I love that he's looking forward to his next indictment. I heard that they uh, might even indict him for the wildfires in Hawaii uh, that happened this week. Um, but the good news is that with five indictments, you get free Big Macs for life. So he's got that going for him. It's just wild the way it's all kind of shaped up. And then just when you think you can't do anything else to the guy, you, you see these light protection order clauses get affixed to his January 6th trial today, in addition to Hunter Biden getting the sweetheart U.S. attorney to do the special counsel into him. I mean, Joe Biden's had a special counsel going on in his document scandal, uh, almost as recent as Donald Trump has had regarding the Mar-a-Lago raid. I do the news for a living. Jim, you're, you're involved in the cycle just as much as well. Have you heard anything regarding any kind of revelations, leaks, anything in court, indictments, nothing regarding Joe Biden and his document case? I've heard absolutely nothing other than a comment from Hillary Clinton saying that she's sorry to hear about his pending suicide. Other mm. than that, it's been crickets. Mm. Well, I tell you what, you know, when, when you start to look at the way this is all unfolding, 
there was some news this week that broke. Apparently, the January 6th committee, which was the greatest committee in the history of committees, and they investigated the greatest travesty in the history of this country. I believe they put it at better. It was larger than multiple civil wars, all the atomic bombs we dropped, Pearl Harbor, and 9-11 put together times 10. But instead oh, of... Instead yeah, absolutely. Of, instead of keeping all of this stuff chronicled in the annals of history... It seems like they've either deleted or destroyed almost all of the information and data they got, you know, were able to gather throughout the course of this entire case. When you heard that news this week, were you shocked? No, I think that they probably took their advice again from Hillary Clinton as well as the uh, the Mueller task force because I believe they did the same thing. So, yeah. Um, but if I was Trump's legal team, I would be insisting in court on discovery of every bit of documentation from the J6 committee. And if they can't uh, present it, then there's got to be some sort of legal recourse that they can follow there because it's a it's a total and complete joke. Uh, he needs to subpoena all that because I think it's going to show that they had a lot of evidence that they did not present just so they could present a one-sided discussion. Agreed. Donald Trump thinks it's a criminal act. He's told Eric Bowling on his show this week just that. Let's hear it. Now that we have the subpoena power, because we now have subpoena power, all of a sudden the J6 committee, the unselects, I call them, everything was deleted and destroyed. The documents, everything was deleted and destroyed. Uh, that's a criminal act. So all of that stuff, all of that nonsense you watched for a year and a half go on with all Democrats and two so-called Republicans, but they were worse than any of the Democrats, Kinzinger and Cheney, uh, it's all been deleted and gotten rid of. They deleted it because they didn't want anybody to see it, because the real answers were there, but they didn't want to report it. Good point. And, and like you alluded to, Jim, they, they shaped their narrative using one side of the story, and the data probably showed otherwise and that's why we're having a hard time i did hear daryl isa he jumped on newsmax yesterday uh he was at a republican sponsored event out here in california he broke off to jump on there and said now that he's been able to talk to some people behind the scenes up on capitol hill he feels like they're going to be able to retrieve some of the stuff that has allegedly been lost or destroyed so i mean he he's a, a long-standing member of of the house you know, Republican uh, side, and, and he's probably one of the, you know, boringer but tougher uh, people up there when it comes to committee. So he doesn't really go for the flashy, like, I got you in committee when they have one of these high-ranking officials or cabinet members, but he does often get to the bottom of things. No one's been tougher on the fentanyl crisis on the U.S. southern border up on Capitol Hill, I think, than Daryl Issa has been over the last couple of years. He's got a lot of individual, uh, you know, efforts out here in, in SoCal to uh, combat that, and he's often holding local, state, and federal officials to task on it. No, I agree. And I really like what he did earlier this week with the Gold Star families from the uh, debacle in Afghanistan and uh, le letting those families have a voice and, and basically bring their anger about uh, how that was happened and the, the lack of empathy from the administration to light there. I thought it was extremely interesting to hear. That certainly was. I also think that, uh, you know, you just have to take a, a look at some of this stuff as Donald Trump has, has got subpoena power now in regards to these 
documents and, and some of the things. Do you think we're eventually going to get to rigged and stolen as far as the election goes? I mean, I know those are his 2020 presidential election pronouns. A lot of us feel there's so many different components and, and facets and, and things that touch the 2020 election that led to Joe Biden eventually being sworn in as the president. But now they've kind of set Donald Trump in to, to do like a reverse investigation while he's being prosecuted. What do you think uh, in regards to pulling the, the curtain back on this whole operation? You know, essentially the, the blueprint for the Time Magazine article. It'll be interesting to see what they're actually going to be able to get their hands on. Uh, we're starting to see a lot of news coming out of Michigan about some um, what I'll call voter irregularities in Muskegon. Apparently, they even arrested a woman for it, and then the city of Detroit refused to extradite that person back over to Muskegon to, to, to talk to investigators again. So it's pretty crazy what, what's, what's going on with that. But, you know, unfortunately, let's, let's, let's be honest here. At the end of the day, Republicans typically don't have the, the brass ones that they need to go after this and make this stuff happen. And so we'll end up with a, with a, 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 a case that doesn't really go anywhere. Trump will probably be found guilty in Washington, D.C., then have to have the Supreme Court overturn it. We won't find any new information out, and that'll be the end of that. I hope I'm wrong. I pray I'm wrong, but history dictates that I'm probably right. Oh, you certainly are, and we're going to be actually touching on that today. We've got Andrew Kloster. He did a great piece on Steve Bannon's War Room just about that Michigan stuff yesterday. We're going to talk to him on the back end of the show. I do want to be able to play the clip that, you know, has kind of been creating a lot of news from that Eric Bowling interview, and it was Donald Trump's reaction to the whole primary debate and the RNC pledge. Let's check it out. We have so much. You just opened up so many avenues right now. But just to clean up, tie up the the, the Fox debate, said so you'll you'll decide next week. What is I'll there? I'll be anything? announcing. Yeah, I've already decided, uh, and I'll be announcing something next week. Because yes. I noticed the Fox senior executives came and had dinner with you and pitched you. Did they move the needle? Well, they were very nice. Look, they were very nice. Here, here's why, uh, Mr. President. The only reason I, I say this, I put a poll up on Twitter. At least two-thirds of the people don't want you to do the debate because they feel it could be a setup. Are you concerned about Fox setting well, up? Well, when you're at 75, 78, 80 percent, and other guys are at zero, one percent, two percent, three percent, you do say, uh, what's the upside? Am I going to go up one point? But they could go up. You know, they're not dumb people. They're senators. They're governors, they're intelligent people. You have some very good people. I think you have some very good people, and you have some people... I mean, I have a problem with the debate for another reason. I wouldn't sign the pledge. Why would I sign a pledge? There are people on there that I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have certain people as, you know, somebody that I'd endorse. So they want you to sign a pledge. But I can name three or four people that I wouldn't support for president. So right there, there's a problem, okay? Right there, there's a problem. I but I don't have to use that. Right now, no, I don't want to do that. Which, I don't want to three? do that. There's no reason to insult them. But there are some people there that a lot of people wouldn't endorse, but they wouldn't be right. They're not going to go anywhere, by the way. They're not going to get it. But I so wouldn't endorse it. So said that's one of the requirements for, yeah. so you won't sign it. Well, they have three or four people that I wouldn't, you know, who would put these people as president? If you ever put these people as president, but you'll get somebody else. There'll be somebody. But right now, I saw Christy Nome, uh, who's terrific. She's done a fantastic job. I watched her this morning. She was on television. They asked her, are you going to run? Because there are other people running. Are you going to run? She said, no. Why aren't you going to run? Because nobody can beat Trump. She said it, which I greatly respect. I mean, she's saying, I hope the truth. She said, why would I run? Nobody's going to beat Trump. There's not even a contest. These people are just wasting their time. Somebody like uh, Asa Hutchinson, who's <laughs> polling at zero, 
will ask me nasty questions. Uh, somebody like Chris Christie is falling at 1% and he's going to ask me nasty questions and others too. And then you have some that are very good. I mean, Tim Scott has been very nice and uh, Ramishwamy has been very, very nice. I mean, these are, you know, very capable people, very good people. But uh, why would you do that when you're leading by so much? Ronald Reagan didn't do it. Nixon didn't do it. Many people didn't do it. And uh, but I'm going to look at it very seriously. I'd like to do it. I've actually gotten very good marks on debating talents. But uh, you want to be, you know, they want a smart president. They want somebody that's going to be smart. Now, Jim, I think one of the biggest takeaways there that a few people are just finally starting to talk about, but we've been talking about here on Steak for Breakfast for about 18 months now, was President Trump's mention of South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Now, outside of personal feelings, because in a perfect world, we'd get, a J.D. Vance or someone of his caliber maybe to run as vice president with Donald Trump. He is going to have to take somebody who's a little bit more towards the middle, but still America first-ish. Uh, you know, when you look at some of the contenders out there, I've heard everybody from Byron Donalds and Elise Stefanik to Carrie Lake and everyone in between. But I always felt like Christy Nome has done a great job promoting America first policies throughout the course of her tenure as governor in her state. She's also quietly put out a national commercial campaign. You see these ads airing on OAN and Newsmax and Fox News. And Fox News even went there this week on Fox and Friends. They had a reporter out there who was polling the audience. They were doing Republican primary. And then their first question after, you know, uh, Donald Trump, everybody cheers, and then all the other candidates, nobody cheers. And then he's like, would you like to see Governor Noem as the vice president of the United States? And everybody cheers. Obviously, because it's in South Dakota, there's a little bit of bias there. But the fact of the matter is, I think she's a safe, secure, and pretty adequate pick when you talk about complementing everything that Donald Trump already brings to the table and what she would need to do as the vice president in supporting him. What do you think? I, I like her a lot. I think she had a, a, a misstep uh, about 18 months ago with some of the uh, stuff she did around transgenders and the NCAA Agreed. Um, and people playing in, in sports. But I think she's worked to correct that. And a lot of people have pretty much forgotten about it. The only challenge about Christy Nome is putting her on the ticket. What's that going to do? Bring you the 60,000 people that live in South Dakota and into your support, not, you know, your support area. So she's not going to bring anything unless they think that she's going to help with the you know educated suburban moms. Which, if she does, that's great. I I, I think it's a good pick. Um, I don't see him going after somebody like uh, Byron Donald. I, I think that uh, Donald's personality is is too big to have him and Trump on the same ticket. They'd, there'd be no oxygen left in the room. Um, and then going back to the debate for for Trump, you know, I, I'm torn on this. I would love to see him on stage and debating these guys and just picking them off one by one by one. But if I was advising his campaign, I'd be like, you know, let's see how this first one goes. Let them kill each other and then you come in later. But that kind of backfired on him in, in Iowa last time. In, in 2016, he didn't go to the Iowa debate and he lost the Iowa caucus. So there's it could cut both ways. No, I agree. It's It's definitely still shaping up. I think, you know, people like Carrie Lake, even MTG was once, you know, thrown out. That they really never have resonated with me. I think they do bring a lot to the table. I think they could add to future administrations. I think some of them, like MTG, is better where she's at right now as someone who could, you know, win her district by 60 points every time she runs for re-election and be a large voice for America First in the House. I think Carrie Lake's kind of 
figuring out what she's going to do, whether it's going to be a Senate run, whether she's going to be an official in a future Trump administration, et cetera. But I think when you look at people with proven track records, not too many hiccups, always supporting Donald Trump, and, and mm-hmm. is able to match or beat Democrats in whatever they could throw in regards to a vice president, whether it's Kamala Harris or if Gavin Newsom gets in the race and, and brings along a Gretchen Whitmer or, you know, a Senator Warren or, or anybody like that caliber to the table to, you know, run as his vice president. I think someone like Christy Noem is tried true and tested and ready to roll. So we're going to keep tracking everything now. I mean, this is kind of getting ready to, we're, we're shaping up how everything's looking, heading into the Iowa State Fair this weekend. Obviously, we're going to bring you guys highlights of that on our Tuesday edition of the show. We're getting ready to jump in with the digital media director from the Center for New in America and the national chairwoman for the Washington, D.C. Young Republicans, Kingsley Cortez. But before we do that, let's hear from one of our partners. I think it's time we had a conversation about a good night's sleep. Pillow King of Minnesota, Mike Lindell, and the apparatus known as the MyPillow family has been cranking out savings down at MyPillow for over 20 years. And for the first time in 20 years, they've changed the long-standing MyPillow and now have the MyPillow version 2.0. You enter promo code STAKE at checkout, you're going to get buy one, get one free. In addition to that, they've got great savings on all things like MyPillow dog beds, the Air Lindell version 1 and 2, My Slippers, and Giza Dream Everything. If you're more of a morning person, they've launched My Coffee. It's available in the bean, the bag, and the pod. When you need a promo code steak here, you're going to get 25% off your order or 50% off when you make it a monthly subscription. MyPillow.com forward slash steak for anything sleep related. If you want the coffee, MyStore.com forward slash steak, or you can always talk to a qualified pillow representative. 1-800-658-8045. All right, joining us next on the show today, this big Friday edition the Steak for Breakfast podcast. She does a little digital media over at the Center for Renewing America. She's also the National Committee Woman for the Washington, D.C. Young Republicans. Always glad to sit down with the lovely Kingsley Cortez. Kingsley, thanks for jumping on the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Oh, it's a pleasure. Busy week for us here in uh, Magatown ahead of the Iowa State Fair this weekend. Donald Trump should go and dominate as we can pretty much all speculate. I'm, I'm watching some of the candidates who were out there. I saw... Uh, there was like a podcast-a-thon yesterday where, regardless who came up, the claps and cheers were very minimal. And then I see some of these events today, and they continue to be attended by tens of people, and it's just not looking good. Kingsley, I know we're all in for President Trump here on the show, as you guys are down there in the uh, Washington, D.C. office, the Young Republicans. But as you're seeing this primary sadly play itself out, and, and they want to have like a pretend one, under the real, clear, pretty much nominee already. How are you seeing this whole thing kind of develop? Yeah, you know, I think Trump is going into Iowa with the momentum behind him. He is ahead in the polls. He's looking fantastic. I also love that he's going to bring all of the Florida congressional members who have endorsed him instead of DeSantis. I think that is a pure Trump, you know, power move. I love to see that from him. That'll get the mainstream media talking. And just to kind of walk through the polls, I mean, he is just pulling ahead. He is the clear front runner. DeSantis is plummeting. This is Trump's race. He is now polling first. DeSantis is in third. I mean, that's just crazy how much he's totally dropped. People aren't really resonating with the message that DeSantis is selling. And in Iowa in particular, Trump has a 26% lead over DeSantis right now. And this is a state where, you know, DeSantis thought it would be a stronghold. He's seen his numbers dip, though, by nine points since April. Similarly, in New New Hampshire, Trump's holding a 34% lead over DeSantis. And he's tied with former Governor 
uh, Chris Christie of New Jersey. I mean, DeSantis is just totally lackluster in his ability to connect with the people and to campaign with the people. It's really sad, to be honest with you. I mean, the more people see of DeSantis on the campaign trail, it seems, the more they dislike him. Now, I think the biggest campaign strategy error that they made going in was thinking that they could run in a Republican primary with the two-time defending nominee in the race, someone who garnered you know, 13 million more votes in his second attempt to run for office than he did in the first, the highest forever, uh, you know, by a Republican president at 74 million. But then, Kingsley, when you look at how, how this whole, okay, strategy is one thing. Maybe you have people in the wrong places. But social media is a large component of, of, of what kind of shapes this field. Do you really think that the DeSantis campaign, all the way up to the top consultants, let's just say Jeff Rowe, Casey DeSantis, the governor of Florida, do you think they know how absolutely vile their online campaign has been since this thing kicked off? Well, I think no, and that's the problem. You know, DeSantis said in a sit-down interview recently um, that the social media kind of back and forth, the jabs that happen online aren't really his style. And for me, I mean, if you can't even dictate how you want your campaign staff to act, if you can't even be a leader in such a small venue as that, how are you going to go up against the deep state if you can't even control, you know, what Christina Pushaw is tweeting all day on Twitter? It's just ridiculous to assume that this guy has any, you know, type A leader mentality. Donald Trump sets the tone. That has always been so obvious. What he says goes, he is a leader for his team, wherever he is, he's in charge. We're all on his terms, his messaging. And DeSantis just doesn't kind of have that same allure, that same commanding presence. I honestly think the best thing DeSantis can do right now is drop out and endorse Trump. This primary is so clearly Donald Trump's. It's totally over for DeSantis. No question about it. I mean, if this were like a horse race, Ron would have tripped out of the starting gate, knee crawled halfway to the finish line before like breaking his femur and having to be put down. He's just totally out of this race. It's very apparent that there, and I mean, now it's even gotten to the, to the top because I don't know if you had saw Chris Lasavita and, and Jeff Rowe were throwing haymakers back and forth at one another last night on Twitter, you know, comparing numbers and career statistics. And it, it basically ended with, I'll see you in Iowa. But I mean, we've gotten to the point now to where, you know, this has fallen off the rails. I, I, I saw a couple DeSantis events today that, that are circulating on Twitter. There's nobody there. People are heckling him. And then when you talk about the rise of other candidates, it's not like they really have anywhere to rise from. It's like, you know, between zero and 10% of the entire electorate, depending on the state you're in right now. And people like Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, they bring track records that might identify with some of the more establishment, you know, friendly voters. And then Chris Christie, people who are just Republicans but are never Trumpers, sure, he'd get some votes there. And then, you know, people even like Vivek Ramaswamy, he's a fresh face and maybe a breath of fresh air for some of the younger voters. But it seems like the more we hear him talk, the media now is just trying to get him to say stuff negatively against Donald Trump. So even when he slips up a little bit, he was talking about, you know, there wasn't anybody who who was courageous in this field uh, this week. It just there's so much time left before people start going to the ballot box. There's really just no chance with any of these candidates to really resonate. And, and it's a shame that. You know, the mainstream media and, and the establishment and the RNC want to play fake primary because this is how they keep everybody engaged. But but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, you get into these races now and you see it in real time 
And, and Donald Trump has pretty much walked away for, with this primary from the absolute beginning. All of the polls are showing that. There's none that are even close. What do you think it's going to look like when, when we get on the ground? It, I mean, it's been almost eight years since Donald Trump has, has gone to the Iowa State Fair in, in campaign mode. And like you said, he's bringing a large delegation uh, of the Florida congressmen and women of America First who have already endorsed him uh, to kind of throw in the face of Ron DeSantis. I think the biggest thing that has Donald Trump looking stronger pretty much now than, than all the way back to 2016 is the fact that he's a touchable candidate again. They don't have all these scandals and impeachments and COVID to kind of keep him away from the American public. It seems like the more he gets out there and interacts with everybody, the stronger he's getting, especially in the polls. Absolutely. And I think, you know, he's also going to have the funds to do it. Early on, there were some, you know, rumblings in the media of the Trump campaign not having the financial war trust to go the difference. And all we heard about, you know, from the talking heads was that DeSantis had so much money. Well, he's blown through that. And the Trump campaign is in great shape. They have tons of cash on hand. They have a low burn rate of around 37%. And they essentially have unlimited potential in future donations, especially small dollar donors who have already given to Trump in 2024, but not maxed out yet. Um, So I think he's in fantastic shape. And, you know, like I said, DeSantis, on the other hand, he's blown through his cash on hand, which has forced his team to lay off dozens of staffers. He's had to replace his campaign manager. Um, You know, the more events he does, the farther he's dropping in the polls and his backers, his donors aren't encouraged to see that, right? It doesn't inspire confidence if you keep giving money to someone and they just continually keep dropping in the polls. So I think, you know, the momentum is behind Trump. The money is behind Trump. He's in a real position of strength as he heads into Iowa. He's absolutely the candidate to beat. And I don't think anyone's going to come close to him. You see, you know, the RNC talking about their loyalty pledge that they're making everyone sign. I think every candidate should have to sign um, a pledge saying that they'll endorse Trump because he is so clearly going to be the Republican nominee. And people like Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, who have been throwing punches, are going to have to get behind him because he is the only one who can stare the deep state and the Washington cartel in the face and not blink. Yeah, they're going to look really bad just sitting on like, you know, CNN and MSNBC every week saying how you can't vote for Donald Trump after he legitimately secures the nomination with with delegates. But here's the thing. I want to stay in this thread just a little bit, Kingsley. You mentioned the the pledge. So there are some things that are silly in the entirety of this, you know, primary process. Uh, Part of it is participating in all the debates. I think when there's races like this, it's probably better for Donald Trump to at least sit out the first one. Number one, hostile territory. Number two, two commentators who are moderating it who don't really prefer him. They've been open about that. Uh, we saw, you know, a little bit of back and forth of Donald Trump and Brett Baer like two months ago when he did a sit-down interview with him. It didn't really go so well for Brett. But then when you talk about, like, the loyalty pledge stuff, I mean, that's just silly. I think that is something that, you know, if they're going to at least have it, have it way later in the process when when you start to weed these things out and it kind of leads everybody to, you know, the one conclusion that the person that's going to be the nominee is, like you just alluded to, who we're all going to get behind when you talk about people like, you know, Asa Hutchinson and uh, Chris Christie. Just the fact that they're making this something that is, is a requirement for the debates in general. How, how much do you think that hurts the process and how just kind of, you know, of a childish thing is that? Oh, I think it's totally childish. And I think, you know, Trump was totally correct when he told Eric Boulding that he wouldn't sign it because there are three to four candidates he wouldn't support. And I think the base is in touch with that. I mean, I certainly think that there are a large number of candidates in this Republican primary that I would never support. I think they would be terrible for the future of the Republican Party because they represent 
kind of a blast back to the Bush era Republican approach to policy. They don't understand America first. They don't understand what Americans outside the Beltway care about, the issues that matter to us. So, you know, I think the RNC's loyalty pledge well, you know, maybe it provides candidates plummet, plummeting in the polls like Ron DeSantis the chance to kind of impress out of out of touch establishment Republicans that work at the RNC or talking heads in the mainstream media. Signing the promise, and I think Trump knows this, is an effective endorsement of Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel's corrupt RNC machine. The RNC had an abysmal 2020 or 2022 midterm performance. They got totally wiped out when we were told and promised that this red wave was imminent. They've had rampant misuse of donor funds. I mean, she's used a large number of their funds for personal expenditures. And I think Americans outside the Beltway have kind of started to see how the RNC doesn't really care about them, what matters to them. They've misused their small dollar donor funds. Um, and I think they just know intuitively now, Trump has shown us that DC consultants represent kind of an uninspired message and the, the evil and kind of vindictive interests of the Washington cartel. And I think President Trump is totally right to not play by their rules. And he doesn't gain anything from this, right? He's so clearly going to be the nominee. Why would he say, oh, if I'm not, I'll support DeSantis or I'll support, you know, Chris Christie. He doesn't gain a single thing from that. He is the winner and he's acting like it. And I'm proud to see it. Yeah. If they ever had some kind of funny business with like the delegates at the convention, just as kind of a bait and switch after they get Donald Trump to hypothetically sign something like the pledge and then say, hey, well, this is who we're choosing. It's Ron DeSantis. It's Chris Christie. It's, you know, it's it's Nikki Haley. Like now we get all of everything that is Donald Trump, your money, your influence, your rallies. And now you're going to go across the country and campaign for them. It's definitely not. I mean, this guy's a businessman at the end of the day. You write up that plan on the board and he just says absolutely no fucking way. It's just the end of it right there. And I think you made some really good points and. It's going to be interesting. We're having the chairwoman on the show next week. I, I'm still a absolutely floored and shocked that they agreed to come on. Uh, they obviously have a really bad research department who doesn't listen to our shows or see any of our social medias. We will keep it civil, but we will ask for receipts, especially regarding. I want to know everything about 100% supporting and backing Donald Trump to you know standing up for him in, in, in the legal premise once he becomes the nominee as well. I want her to be able to say yes or no uh, here on Steak for Breakfast, and we'll get it next week. Kingsley, last thing I want to touch with you on, I think it's really important. We always bring our guests on the show, not because they're America first, not just because they support President Trump, but because all of the great works they're doing across the country. The D.C. Young Republicans is blowing up, and you've been a big part of that as the National Committee woman there. Tell us what's going on there, maybe the latest and anything you guys got coming down the pike, or for people that want to get involved. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, please follow all of our social media channels. We're at Washington DCYRs. We have retaken this formerly rhino, totally dead DC club that, you know, had no social events, no speakers, dead in the water. And we've revamped it. We've made it America first again. I mean, this was a club that was scared to have, you know, congressmen like Matt Gates come and speak because they thought they were too controversial. So we have totally brought them in to what it means to be a Republican in 2023. And I'm really excited about the future of the club. We've grown massively online and in our total membership. And just to give you the latest, our next speaker, we're really excited about. She's going to be um, speaking to us in late September, the ambassador of El Salvador, uh, Milena Mayorga. And we just really want to kind of reaffirm 
to the club and to our membership, you know, that what El Salvador has done, we can do in the United States. I always say, you know, our blue Democrat run cities that are ridden with crime, like DC, like New York, they need their own naive Bukele's. We need to completely destroy all of the rampant crime that these Soros prosecutors are allowing. He's given us the blueprint for that. And he's shown us that, you know, decline is a choice. We can rechart America's territory and orient it towards prosperity. We just currently have elites in power that don't want to do that. They don't want to lock people up. They want to have these people roaming our streets and making it a hellscape for citizens that live in those different cities across the country. So we're really excited to host her. I think it'll be a fantastic event um, and get a lot of press, especially internationally. That's something we're really trying to grow as well as our domestic interests. I think there are, you know, populist movements around the world. We see it in Hungary with Orban. We've seen it recently in El Salvador. There is a movement of individuals all across the world that are fed up with the global elite. They are rejecting this new world order that Klaus Schwab is trying to impose on everyone. And we want to make sure that we're standing up with those folks. So we're really excited for that event. Oh, and we're really excited to hear about it. We'll have you on the show again before that, Kingsley, so you can re-promote it again as well. Can you just give us your social media? We'll live link that in the show description today. Yeah, I am at Kingsley Cortez with an S on all the platforms. Please check me out. And we checked her out here providing some fire commentary on this Friday edition of Steak for Breakfast. She's doing a great work at the Center for Renewing America. She's doing a great job as the National Committee woman with the D.C. Young Republicans. And she's always doing a great job when she comes here on the show. Ms. Kingsley Cortez, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. President Biden yet about these allegations from a former Hunter Biden business associate that uh, Hunter would call his dad, then the vice president, and put him on speakerphone to chat uh, uh, with his business associates. So at the conclusion of this event, I had a chance at the president's invitation, he waved us on over uh, to ask him. There's this testimony now where one of your son's former business associates is claiming that you were on speakerphone a lot with them, talking business. Is that what? I've never talked business in anybody. And I, I know you'd have a lousy question. Well, what do you, it's, why is that a lousy question? Because it's not true. Thank you, Mr. President. Well, I know a lot of us saw that going around the news cycle this week when Peter Ducey caught Joe Biden after a speaking event while he was touting Binomics. Oh! And uh, asked him about Hunter Biden's business dealings and the fallout from the testimony given two weeks ago up on Capitol Hill behind closed doors by Devin Archer. Now, Jim, I know you track the news just about as much as we do here on the show. Do you think, because there's a lot of people that have been hypothesizing about this, is this more of Fox News creating political theater? Or do you think that was an honest and genuine question that, that Ducey asked and an even more honest reaction from Joe Biden, who immediately got grouchy and basically told him to F off? Well, if you've actually seen the video, it's very interesting because Biden waves Ducey over and Ducey had to crawl over like a small barricade to get to him. And the president let him. And, you know, Ducey asked probably the best question that you could ask. And, and he's the only one asking those questions. Uh, and I think you got an honest an honest answer from Biden, meaning that he just gets angry like a like a crazy old man usually does when you ask him a question. Uh, and I've never heard thank you, Mr. President, sound more like a curse word in my life than the way Steve Ducey said thank you to Biden when he was done. But it just goes to show, you know, neither Biden is so senile that he doesn't remember doing these phone calls or he's just a stone cold liar to the American people. 
And I think that's one of the things a lot of people forget about because we're so engulfed in this heading into 2024 presidential campaign. Joe Biden's long documented history of lying about everything is well chronicled. I mean, he's had to abandon what two different, uh, you know, presidential campaigns over the course of his career for one was for plagiarism and the other one for straight up lying on his resume. He makes references to being, you know, genetically made up of just about every demographic race and religion on the planet, depending on where he's speaking at. And, uh, you know, to think that anything has changed in his old age and, and decline in mental capacity, I think is just naive. But a lot of times people forget about how much of a corrupt politician Joe Biden has been his entire career. Well, again, as someone who's been on the government dole his entire adult life to be worth the money he's worth is either he has the best financial advisor in the world, and I'd like to get my hands on his financial advisor, mm. or he's doing something dirty. But, you know, the, the interesting part is that at this point, I actually wonder if Biden believes what he's saying because he just doesn't know reality any longer. Yeah, that's a really good point as well. I mean, I think he's he's to a point now where there are some things that probably escapes him, but... I mean, when he's jet-setting off every weekend and he spent about a third of his entire presidency on vacation to these multi-million dollar homes he owns up and down the eastern seaboard, it's it's kind of hard to, you know, speculate that he doesn't know where these things came from. Um, exactly. It, it, it's, it's weird. And, and, I mean, again, this is as the news is breaking today, I'm sure we're going to have a lot more of a breakdown of this after the Sunday morning news circuit hits it on our Tuesday edition of Steak for Breakfast next week that David Weiss – the U.S. attorney of Delaware was assigned to a special counsel to look into Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's business dealings. And this is the guy who sat idly by and made complaints about Hunter Biden getting a sweetheart deal, but then did nothing about it. He's now going to be overseeing the investigation into those said allegations and ones that, you know, continue to, to ramp up against the 46th president. I saw Stephen Miller was on the Botox Queen show last night, uh, Laura Ingram. She wasn't blinking, but she was definitely listening when he was dropping some damning revelations on the most recent documents that came out. Yeah, well, Stephen, the House Oversight memo that was released today that all the protectorate is just dismissing said the then Vice President Biden joined approximately 20 phone calls on speakerphone with Hunter Biden's foreign business associates and did attend dinners with foreign oligarchs who paid huge sums of money to Hunter Biden. Now, Stephen, are we now to believe there are if you're going to stay on the sanctions list? unless money somehow flows to the Biden honeypot. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be on the sanctions list forever. Is that is that what we're supposed to believe? The, the message is loud and clear. If you pay the Biden family exorbitant sums of money, then you will be shielded from the United States in matters of foreign policy. You need no better example than being kept off being immunized from the sanctions list or, of course, in the now infamous example of firing the prosecutor that was investigating the very company that was paying Hunter Biden, Burisma. And now, of course, after all this money is funneled by Ukraine to the Biden family, you have a Biden administration foreign policy that is doing what? It's funneling your taxpayer dollars back to Ukraine. So in every instance, you see giving money to the Biden family garners favorable treatment in return. This is the most significant public corruption scandal in American history. And as Molly says, 
The documentary evidence that has been assembled by James Comer and other members of the House is extraordinary. Page after page of evidence, testimony, and bank records putting Joe Biden, not Hunter, but Joe, at the center of an influence-peddling scheme. This is beyond damning what has been revealed. All right, Jim, this is definitely going back to Joe Biden, regardless of how the White House wants to spin it. And, and to see the way that things are kind of shaping up with Joe Biden's document special counsel, now the Hunter Biden special counsel, all of these things happening up on Capitol Hill, the work that Jamie Comer, Jim Jordan, and the rest of the America First House Republicans are doing, and the inactivity from the other side of the aisle. How are you seeing this shaping up? Are we going to see Joe Biden or Hunter Biden held to any kind of account before we get to the ballot box next fall? Uh, you know, again, I've got to separate the emotional from the uh, logical, and my my logical side says it's not going to happen. Uh, again, if you let history dictate the way that Republicans typically act in something like this, we're really good at talking. We're really good at saying we're going to do something. We're really good at saying that's all I can stand because I can't stand no more. But when it comes to action, the only thing that they they seem to do is to hold news conferences and go on the talk shows. Um, we've already heard Mitch McConnell say he doesn't think that they should do an impeachment of Joe Biden. I don't know why they haven't at least started the inquiry at this point. They better do that when they get back, because uh, that will give them a little bit more power to subpoena. Um, at the end of the day, do I think that this special prosecutor is going to do anything and, or the special counsel is going to do anything with Hunter Biden? No. Do I think anything is going to happen to Joe Biden? No. And they'll just continue to go after President Trump, put, push him, and then everyone else will just forget. That's a good point. One of the people that's working real hard, speaking about jumping on talk shows, is not our least favorite admiral, because Randy Levine still owns that, but our second least favorite, John Kirby, jumped on Fox News yesterday to talk about this and to push back on claims that Joe Biden was involved in Hunter Biden's business dealings. Let's check it out. Okay, one last question. I, I know you saw uh, Peter Ducey's question to the president yesterday. Uh, the president said, I never talked business to anybody. Um, but Devin Archer testified that the point of putting the phone, the speakerphone down at those meetings, which is what Peter was asking about, was just to demonstrate access, that Hunter had access to the then vice president uh, and to sell the Biden brand. So what do you say about that, John? And, and when will the president actually answer some of these questions to put some of this to rest himself. Oh my goodness, Martha. I mean, he just did with Peter. I mean, he's the one who called Peter over and had Peter, you know, risk life and limb cutting across that barrier. I mean, he specifically called Peter over. Uh, and he, you know, look, he knows Peter. He knows Peter's not going to ask some softball question about, uh, you know, about uh, how his vacation was. He, he knows who Peter is and he answered that question. And I don't know what no, he it's didn't. Take he from, didn't answer but, whether but, or not no, he Martha. was on speakerphone in those meetings, John. He just said, I never talked business to anybody. The question was about business, and he answered it consistently with what he said um, uh, so so many times before. He's been very consistent that he wasn't talking business. But the question is, uh, was he allowing his presence, you know, on speakerphone to speak volumes? Was he allowing that presence to say, this is my son, he has access to me, while he's talking to Ukrainian businessmen, Chinese businessmen, Russian businessmen, um, you know, after the invasion of Crimea, as Katie Pavlich just pointed out? I just don't know how many times he's going to have to say no to the same question. And he said it. He said it consistently. He's been consistent about this. There were no discussions about business with uh, with uh, with his son or his son's business partners. And again, he called Peter over. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying he knew that that was the question, but uh, he certainly knew it wasn't going to be a softball when he answered it. 
Which Peter appreciated, absolutely. Um, you know, everybody likes to have the opportunity to ask questions to the president, and uh-huh. I know Peter said he appreciated having that opportunity. So um, we'll see where it goes from here. Boy, she really backpedals at the end of that, doesn't she? She uh, lays a nice groundwork for maybe Kirby to take her out to dinner, have a nice glass of wine together. It's like, we want to beat you up, but we still want you to come back on the show and provide commentary. Exactly. So. You know, the funny part to me with all this is these folks have no idea how shakedowns work, right? And when you're trying to peddle influence, if I'm a, a, a member of organized crime and I'm shaking down the local restaurant and the restaurant owner says, I'm going to call the police, I, if I'm being, uh, if my accomplice is the chief of police, I get the chief of police on the phone and said, I'll call him for you. And then... I don't have to have the chief of police say you better pay his money or we're not going to do something. All he has to do is say, hey, you know, it'd be a darn shame if um, your place caught fire and no one was there to protect it. Or is the weather nice there? Because it sure is nice here. But the point is showing that you have the ability to influence and get hold of people who have influence, not to have those people start making threats and doing things. That's what the lower level folks are for. Yeah. And then when you talk about this money trail, I mean, just the $6.5 million, that's the Devin Archer, Hunt and Biden Burisma business dealings, but you've also got allegations now of a $3.1 million transfer through the, the Biden money laundering machine uh, from Romania, Kazakhstan, $140,000 plus for a new car, um, China, over $8 million. And then, you know, Yolanda uh, Bartarina, who's the widow of the former mayor of Moscow, $3.5 million transition there as well. When, when you start to look at it, it totals over $20 million. House Republicans are already alluding to the fact that, you know, it's way more north of 30 or $40 million total by the time they get done with their investigations. But we'll see where that goes. Uh, I do want to remind everybody who's listening to the podcast today, I hope you're enjoying it. Please make sure you're subscribed to Steak for Breakfast across every downloadable podcasting platform. And then our social media is Twitter, Getter, Instagram, and Truth Social. Find our accounts, follow them, and hit the notification bell. Uh, it was great sitting down with Kingsley Cortez just a few minutes ago. We're going to be jumping in with former chief of staff to Capitol Hill, Jim Paff, in just a minute. I do want to also, you know, remind our listenership, we're listening to these clips here, you know, some of them from Fox News, the media coverage of Biden versus Trump. You, you literally have allegations in special counsels in these court proceedings for Donald Trump's. None of it has been proven factual, supposedly innocent until proven guilty. And then Joe Biden is having people who dealt directly with him and Hunter Biden come to the United States, come up to Capitol Hill, provide testimony, provide receipts. They're formulating something right now that looks like they're building a strong case. 332 minutes uh, was dedicated to Donald Trump's alleged, you know, indictments and, and allegations that are remaining against him. Four minutes and 50 seconds were, were, were dedicated to Joe Biden yesterday, and a lot of that was the 22nd piece of him and Peter Ducey. And I do want to remind everybody, before he went and got nasty with Peter Ducey, literally 10 seconds before that, Joe Biden reached over a railing when he was supposedly meeting constituents and shook a Secret Serviceman's hand. <laughs> At least he shook a real person's hand instead of the invisible man that follows him around in most of his speeches. You can't make this stuff up. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where we're reaching a point now to where the media bias is so out of control. You know, everybody says, oh, yeah, everybody's in and against Donald Trump. But the fact of the matter is, just when you break down the minutes, over 330 minutes dedicated to Donald Trump is finished and, and less than five minutes across, you know, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, CNN, all of them to Joe Biden. And uh, it, it was just some get me clip of of him and Peter Ducey having an argument. So. And we got to look at what the, the there there is. Joe Biden can't be engulfed in scandals if he's still, 
you know, coming with his handout for money from Congress to send to places where he has all of these business dealings and special interests going on. Uh, we do want to send thoughts and prayers out to all the people in Maui. We know they endured quite a natural disaster over the course of the last few days with the wildfires there. But while Congress is looking to allocate funds there, the President of the United States is currently looking to send them somewhere else. Let's check this out. Hearing about, you know, sending more money to Ukraine, considering all that the U.S. has sent already. That's right, Stella. Well, just this morning, he is expected to ask Congress for at least $25 billion in additional funds to Ukraine, $13 billion going towards defense, $12 billion going towards disaster aid. Now, this comes as reports indicate that government funding is set to dry up at the end of September next month, and House and Senate members are expecting and anticipating this money um, going towards Ukraine and Taiwan. Now, the Senate would likely support this new aid. Um, it may face some challenge in, this, in the House, where House Speaker Kevin McCarthy set promise that he would not bring any more supplemental aid to Ukraine and this funding bill uh, to the floor. So-, so, as Joe Biden's scandals continue to ramp up, and it looks like there were definitely some horrible things going on with uh, him getting paid and Hunter Biden getting paid for, for doing bad business out in Ukraine, Joe Biden is going ready to ship $24 billion more U.S. tax dollars over to the greatest border skirmish in the history of border skirmishes. Jim, what do you think? There are two things here. One is it's going to be extremely interesting to see how much money Zelensky has made from the war with Russia. Uh, that guy is getting rich beyond belief. The other thing, and this really pisses me off, is that a lot of that aid money that we're sitting over there is to fund their internal apparatus. It is to fund the government. It's to pay their pensions. It's to do all those things when we can't even do that for our own people. We can't take care of our veterans, and yet we're paying the salaries of a corrupt regime's uh, politicians to be in office while they're having this, like you said, the world's greatest border skirmish in the history of border skirmishes. But uh, I bet you old Zelensky's got a nice bank account in Switzerland that's getting fatter and fatter and fatter. I think he's going to wind up living in France or something when he's done with the whole war in Ukraine. He's going to retire to one of his uh, chateaus that he's got out there. It's just, it's mind-blowing to think. And listen, when you talk about that amount of money and, and when you include military aid and all the other crap that we've... It's, a quarter of a trillion dollars over to this border skirmish with Russia right now. And, and and it comes at a time when when Joe Biden couldn't be asking for it. Appropriation season is upon us when, when the congressmen and women get back up on Capitol Hill uh, to, to kick off September. And it's going to be absolutely wild because, you know, it, it's one of those things. They tie Ukraine aid into the same kind of uh, asking for money as they do for relief for Taiwan and Maui. And, you know, the American people are just like, well, we have to we have to fund the, the people over in Hawaii. So, you know, I guess if money Ukraine is tied to it, we might as well just roll with it, right? What's a couple more dozen billion dollars over there? So it's just kind of sad to see, and I hope that House Republicans are in for a little bit of a fight. We're going to be sitting down with Jim Paff in just a second right now, but before we do that, let's check in with one of our sponsors. This episode of the podcast is brought to you, as always, by Man Rubs. Rubs, barbecue tools, blowtorches, t-shirts, coffee cups, and all-around barbecue-related gear for you to make barbecue great again can be found at manrubs.com and on Instagram, manrubs. Use the code STEAK15 for 15% off your order. All right, joining us next on this Friday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast He's a Republican strategist and the former chief of staff to Capitol Hill. Always thrilled to sit down with Mr. Jim Paff. Thanks for coming on the show today. Glad to be here, my friend. Oh, man. What a wild and crazy week it's been. And uh, we're about to hit the Iowa State Fair this weekend. Touching on that a little bit today. And then some of the developments in the uh, 
Well, the Trump trials, which I think is, uh, according to the mainstream media, engulfing the entire you know circuit. So, Jim, great to have you on the show, and uh, let's talk about it a little bit. So, Republican primary is going to be under the microscope this weekend. Early events are already kicked off. We had some meet and greets over the course of the last 48 hours. Today, people are back on the ground in Iowa, and then over the course of the next two days, we're going to see just about how big drawing power all of these candidates who say they're viable uh, are going to have in real time. Outside looking in, I mean, you know the way we look at things here on Steak for Breakfast. That's reality. This is, you know, an eventual three-peat for President Donald Trump, more of a coronation than it is a, a primary. But the RNC wants to play with the best of the rest and pretend there's a whole other primary going on underneath him. So how are you looking at this thing developing? Listen, I was uh, working uh, on a uh, business project that uh, had me in Iowa for some time. And I, I was, I had my RV sitting on the state fairgrounds there. I uh, got to know the people in Des Moines fairly well. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you, and, and so I talked I'm talking to people there about what's going on to be candid, even though, you know, there's a little bit of support for Ron DeSantis kind of, um, you know, it's just not there. I, I, I know people on the uh, Polk County, Republican Central Committee there. There's there's some mix in that group, which tends to be a bit more rhino than than others, but there's some good folks on there too. It's just not happening for anybody. Iowa, even if Donald Trump were, which I don't believe is going to happen, were to lose Iowa, the, the fact is he's going to clean up house in New Hampshire, he's really going to clean up house both places. And and it is kind of a coronation. Listen, I, I believe in the fairness of the process and I have no problem with people who want to run for office deciding they want to run. But the reality is Donald Trump has this nomination locked up right now. It's going to be over with by February, even with all the trials. And, and then it's on to taking on Joe Biden. If he can live uh, through the uh, summer next year. <laughs> Well, and I think that's a really good point you make. And one of the things that we've been able to encapsulate here on the show, because, you know, we're bi-weekly, sometimes we throw you a bonus episode every now and again. But but the fact of the matter is we get to see this play out on a week-by-week basis here. And, and you know, there's a lot of other shows that get to see it on a daily basis. And, and I think one of the disservices that the mainstream media does to the average listener, casual follower of politics, politically uneducated, if you will, is that they tell him a different story of what the actuality of it is. You know, when you look at just the amount of time Donald Trump received in the news over the course of the last six months regarding his legal cases, and, and, and all of them are shots in the dark, I think, to say the least. You know, as far as, like, an eventual conviction, conviction after Supreme Court and all the appeals processes and stuff like that. But they're not really telling the story of the man who got 74 million votes in the last presidential election. They want you to think that that number isn't real, but Joe Biden's 81 million votes was, and Donald Trump's 74 million votes have somehow evaporated to all of these, you know, career politicians and outsiders who are coming in here with no relevant experience, those who have worked in government, a track record of, uh, you know, voting and, and supporting the establishment ways and bees. And, you know, it, it doesn't really give them insight onto how strong. Re- I, I think I was talking in a, in a Twitter space yesterday. I think Donald Trump looks stronger right now than he did back in, in November of 2020 when he got 74 million votes. Because without the guise of COVID and all the stuff that was swirling around the 2020 election, 
you have Donald Trump back out in the community being a touchable candidate again. So not only is he tearing it up at all of these speaking events and holding an occasional rally, which he technically doesn't even need to do, I think he honestly does that for the voters, period. And just to show everybody, every time they try to say Trump is finished, he's like, all right, I'm going to pull 50,000 people at this venue right now, and we'll show everybody just how finished I am. But then, you know, you see all of these other people, and and they're well-known public figures, let's say Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, and they go to these events, and there's 10 people there. And and they're yeah. getting heckled getting on and off their buses, and they're not in places where... You know, they need to be like a lot of those people should be focusing on Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina right now. And it seems like they're all kind of running around everywhere else. But how are you, you know, kind of navigating the field and and, and providing insight for people who are looking for real answers right now? Do you think Donald Trump is as strong or even stronger right now than he was back in in November of 2020? And do you think that, uh, you know, this leads to him eventually walking away with this nomination, regardless of what happens to him? Well, it's hard to make direct comparisons uh, where there's a real primary between 2020 and now. I do think he's stronger, though, for one uh, one big reason. We don't have COVID. It's a great point. Now, now that that was a, a something that worked against Donald Trump as a dynamic in 2020 due to the fact that the country was in chaos. By the way, quick side note, let's just remember the entire chaos of COVID very little of it had to do with the pandemic itself. And honestly, it was a pandemic, although I'm not sure that everyone who died died of COVID um, because no one uh, seemingly died of flu when tens of thousands of do every year. So, but if we put that aside for a second, government actors uh, cause chaos in the country that caused an economic crisis as well as an education crisis and as we now know, and people suspected greatly, a crisis of the government shutting down free speech. You had absolute chaos all over the country. And uh, James Carville, uh, Bill Clinton's uh, campaign manager, and and frankly, a, a brilliant political strategist, even though I disagree with him on almost everything, mm-hmm. was right to say it's the economy stupid back in the 1990s. The economy drives what voters do. It's not the absolute indicator, but it is the it is a dynamic you cannot ignore. You have to know what that dynamic is every time. That dynamic is very negative right now. Even though Joe Biden's out there trying to tout Bidenomics, well, sorry, Bidenomics sucks and everybody in this country knows it. They feel negative. They you and I were just talking offline beforehand about gas prices. They're outrageous. You're seeing them big time in California, but even here in the Midwest and in Indiana and other places, it's bad. And people know it. It's harming them and hurting their lives. They know that Joe Biden is responsible for that, and they largely will hold him accountable for that. 2022, there wasn't a big bump in uh, Republican change in Congress, but Joe Biden wasn't on the ballot. He's going to be on the ballot this time. So now, now here's one quick indicator going a little long. But uh, here's some recent polls in key states. North Carolina, Trump is up over Biden, 54 to 46. This is a prime group Gephardt poll. This is no conservative right-wing poll. Uh, Georgia, Trump is up 52-48. Arizona, Trump is up 52-48. Wisconsin, Biden was up 53-47. But Michigan and Pennsylvania, Donald Trump is tied 50-50. In this poll just a few short weeks ago, this poll also looked at a potential no labels candidate. So if Joe Manchin were to decide to run as a as a no labels candidate, 
it's even worse for Joe Biden. Now, I don't, th- I don't think Manchin's going to do it, and I don't think there's going to be no labels candidate. But what that shows is weakness for Biden in the electorate, in my mind. That's very real. Donald Trump's very strong. I think, listen, Jack Smith has made it obvious that, that Donald Trump's going to be the next president of the United States, in my mind. That's the same way we feel here. And now, Jim, let's stay in that thread right now and, and jump right over to the special counsels and, and all the court stuff that Donald Trump's going on. We did see some developments this morning in the January 6th related case to, uh, you know, protection orders and things that Donald Trump can and cannot do, which, again, is a clear cut case of election interference. They're going to say it. The, the media is going to spin it. But the fact of the matter, that's what it is. This judge, Chutkin, she's. A radical, close to the Clintons, huge Democrat donor, has had to recuse herself from Russiagate-related cases. You know, you name it. She worked at a law firm where Hunter Biden lurked. You can't make this stuff up. This lady is literally the worst judge you could have for this case. But at the end of the day, the rule of law will prevail. If it takes it all the way up to the Supreme Court, so be it. But Donald Trump is definitely not getting a fair shake in this. What what are you seeing now as, as, as some of these things that are breaking down in court today ahead of the Iowa State Fair, uh, how they're kind of rolling out? Well, first of all, it, it could have been much worse in terms of what the judge ordered. So she did back off a little bit. And she backed off to the areas where you would want there to be backing off. In other words, just a grand jury stuff. I think it is fair to be very cautious about what can be discussed in grand jury testimony in, in the middle of a case. Uh, that said... Not everything there should be restricted. This was clearly and is clearly uh, an attempt to uh, get the get a desired outcome in this election. It's not as severe as this, but this we just had this happen in Brazil. And Joe Biden is praising Lula, who's a socialist communist, yep. and is saying it once again. Uh, he went to prison, Lula did, because he was a corrupt individual. And then the uh, Supreme Court... Uh, head Supreme Court justice there allowed him to get it on the ballot against Bolsonaro. And Bolsonaro is not a perfect guy. I like him, but he's not perfect. But nonetheless, uh, Lula should never have been allowed on the ballot. And the Supreme Court there allowed him to be on the ballot. And I believe that election actually was stolen at the ballot box. Come to United States where it's not quite that bad, but we have very real risks. And this is the, a very similar things happening here. Our justice system here in the United States, uh, where they do control it, which is most or many places, they are controlling this whole thing. The entire purpose of this prosecutorial process is to harm Donald Trump. Jack Smith's not going to win this case. It will get kicked out in the Supreme Court if it goes there. I actually think even possibly in D.C., where you're where you're going to have a jury of Democrats, um, you still may see this case not go to conviction but um i think donald trump legally is on proper grounds to do what he's done and and they even know if they lose their intention is to harm his political effort to become president it's what they've been doing the whole time it's why we've got to fight and make sure that not just that we're upset about what's going on but that every person who supports donald trump is working hard right beginning right now to get people identified who'll vote for him and to get them to the polls. Because even if there is election fraud that people try to, to commit in 2024, you can overwhelm the polls. And I think there's overwhelming support for Donald Trump if we'll just do it. But no, there's there's no doubt that 
this whole process is to harm Donald Trump, to make him look like he's a criminal. And in this particular indictment just recently, to make it look like he was instigating an attack on the Capitol, which he did not do. And we could talk about it, but the Tucker Carlson interview with uh, Stephen Sun, the former uh, Capitol Hill police chief, is very revealing in that regard. I know a lot of USCP officers when I worked on Capitol Hill. They're great people. Most of them that I knew were definitely not Republicans, and they were very fair to me. We had great friendships. We care for one another. If I see them on Capitol Hill to this day, it's a hug and a, hey, how you doing, man? And they're nice. Uh, they got treated crappy, too. That's another part of this issue. No, it is. And, and, and if you kind of see how you know the administrative state is painting Donald Trump, I like to call it like the Fifty Shades of MAGA, all the different things that they try to have Donald Trump embody throughout these court cases. There was the Mar-a-Lago raid and then the secret documents. So Donald Trump is committing espionage. He's a spy. And then you have this stuff that's, that's going on with the special counsel now. January 6th, he's an insurrectionist. He's, he's essentially embodying a Confederate general and trying to retake, you know, the United States away because he doesn't feel that our, uh, you know, legal system and voting process was appropriate because he supposedly didn't win. And now you're looking down the road at this, you know, Fannie Davis case that's coming in Georgia. What an absolute debacle. So if, so if he's not a spy and, and he's not, uh, you know, Robert E. Lee, they're going to paint him as like a mob boss and, and slap him with Rico. This would be like a great multiverse movie just to talk about Donald Trump's court cases right here. When you see that case coming down the pike, I mean, they're looking... Basically, the premise for all of these cases is we hope we can get some lower level, just regular employee to like flip on him and, and corroborate everything that that we're alleging him with. But that's not really the case. So what, what do you see is the Georgia case is, is coming down the pike here and we should probably have Donald Trump back in court within the next two weeks regarding it. So and in fact, I heard uh, this next week uh, there. I heard a rumor of a Tuesday indictment and a court appearance on Thursday next week. That's a possibility. It's not absolutely confirmed. That's what I've heard. But um there's absolutely zero, zero uh, criminality in the Georgia case or any of these other cases. I think there's one in Wisconsin and a couple other places related to electors. Listen, you, you have to have means, motive, and opportunity for a crime to be committed. At least that's, that's what you have to have to be able to prosecute a crime, to do a proper investigation. There's more to the legalities than that. But that's the fundamental process of investigation. Means? No. Donald Trump had no means to steal the election through a side slate of electors. Motive? Sure. You know, you want to have uh, mo uh, electors available who can vote for you if you can prove your case there. Opportunity? Zero opportunity. Listen, the, the electors are delivered to Congress uh, to, uh, the, by means of the um, uh, National Archives, handed to the uh, pre Senate president, who's the vice president, and then they open them, and then there could be a debate on the floor, as we know, and then you do the count, and you're done. And if the debate on the floor is successful, that both houses will vote against that slate of electors, and you send it back to the state, then you can win that process. None of that involves anything that Donald Trump did in Georgia, except to uh, make an effort to create an alternate slate of electors. This happened in 1960. Let's not forget this. Yep. In 1960 in Hawaii, there was an alternate slate of electors for Democrats that was put together, and they were able to be presented to Congress later on because of a recount, because Nixon had barely won the state, and they did a recount, 
and Kennedy ended up winning it. But we forget, and that wasn't anywhere near as contentious election as, say, 1876, which caused the origin of the Electoral Count Act, under which the 2020 election was governed. The uh, ability to challenge elections, even past the November election process, popular vote process, is absolutely and fundamental, not only a First Amendment right, but the normal process of politics. It's not doesn't normally happen necessarily, but it is a normal part of the process. There's absolutely no criminality in Georgia at all, and it's just a travesty. They're doing this to take down Donald Trump, not to seek justice. Every time that they try to say, well, you know, Donald Trump needs to pay for his criminal behavior, just like every other American. Okay, well, why is Nancy Pelosi not being frog-marched right now over what we just heard Stephen Sund tell Tucker Carlson on his Twitter podcast uh, just yesterday that is insurrection we know right now that people including general milley by the way uh, remember general milley was talking to his counterpart in the chinese military leading up to the 2020 election saying what he was going to do to donald trump then we find out that he was not giving stephen sund the intel that stephen sund need to properly protect the capital Well, why is that? What was the motive? And why was no one talking to the Capitol Police Chief, who's in charge of of, uh, security at the Capitol? Why no one talking to him? Now, we don't know all the absolute details of this, but Stephen's son's not lying. He mean, there may be more information, but he's certainly not lying. The insurrectionists are General Milley, in my mind, if there are any, are General Milley, Nancy Pelosi, and some others that are playing that game. That's my concern, not Donald Trump. Agreed. And, uh, you know, just this week when we find out the January 6th committee destroyed a lot of the uh, documents and and things that they had been able to gather and and use to formulate their narrative throughout the course of the committee there has been, you know, destroyed or lost. So there's a lot of moving parts in this. I I think it went off without a hitch in real time back on January 6th for them against Donald Trump. And they've kind of set up a lot of stop gaps in between then and now these court cases to prevent a full on investigative review. But I feel like the time we get through all of these sham court cases, these witch hunts and hoaxes, we get through the appeals processes. And then we start to really pull back who was, you know, conducting this entire operation throughout, you know, the fallout from the 2020 presidential election all the way up through when Joe Biden took office. We're going to have a lot different narrative than a lot of people are using right now. And I think that, you know, our side, America First, is going to be proven right yet once again. Jim, this has been great sitting down with you on the show today. You're always very active on Twitter or X as a Spaces host. Love jumping in with you whenever I can. We're also going to live link your Against Nice podcast. But for anyone that's not following you, where can they check you out? Go to locategym.com. Locategym.com. Very simple a link to my podcast to my Substack, to my Twitter profile and other social media are there as well. And uh, I want everyone to check it out. And we love checking you out when you're here on the show. This is Republican strategist, former chief of staff to Capitol Hill, Mr. Jim Vaff. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks, my friend. 22 years is I am so in his head. What's he doing talking about me? It's because now I'm in second place in New Hampshire. And if he looks at everything I've done in my career, and what he wants to talk about is the way I look, fine. Because I'll tell you this, there are tens of millions of Americans who have struggled with their weight the same way I struggle with my weight. And they look at somebody who talks like that, and they say, that's a child. That's a child. So let him keep talking. You want to say something? Two weeks from tonight, 
show up. I'll be on the stage. He punches the defenseless. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you navigate DeSantis versus Trump? So I navigated by saying that what we really need is a courageous leader. Now, I don't think that the Republican you don't think the two of them are. I don't think so. This right. is ridiculous to talk about a climate emergency when we have a border emergency that is an existential threat right now. So, I mean, if we're to believe what the stats say, we're in record level heat across the country and in some cases around the world. Do you believe that we're in the middle of climate change and do you believe it's it's because of the use of fossil fuels? We, so the, the climate is obviously changing, but what we should realize, Brian, is that the country that's cut its carbon footprint in half in the last 25 years is America. The best thing to do for the climate is to keep our jobs at home, not to send them to countries like China, India, and Africa that have not impacted their actual carbon footprint. Let me see if I How has life treated you since Tucker Carlson ruined your career? You know, I had a very sporty debate with that former talk show host and Fox. And I will tell you, um, you know, when some people put out a video from that that cut off the back half of my answer, I... Well, that was great sitting down with uh, former Capitol Hill Chief of Staff Jim Paff. And let's play a little 2024 presidential primary roundup. So... You guys heard from the candidates, and I want to let our listenership know, much to probably their enjoyment, Noah, who's been at advanced, advanced, advanced forklift training for the last little while, is uh, in studio for our third news segment today. He's joining us, and Jim Nels, who's co-hosting. Noah, welcome back. I made it. So uh, what can you tell our listenership about the newest and latest developments within forklift training? Well, there's still two forks, so that hasn't changed, because I don't really know if three forks would work as well. Mm. Uh... That's about it. Now, Jim, as a supply chain expert, how much of an important component is the forklift delegation of America First? I tell you what, the forklift guys are the backbone of the supply chain. If you can't get that truck unloaded, you can't get things off the shelves, then you don't have anything on the shelf to begin with. So Mm. cheers to Noah for not only being a good forklift driver, but to going into that advanced training. And I bet you he cares so much about the environment that he even uses a green, friendly forklift. Oh, I've driven a green one. Way to reduce your carbon footprint. (laughs) Things that are also getting reduced is the amount of votes people are getting in these Republican primary polls. National ones out from this week. Um, From Senegal, I saw yesterday, National Republican primary, Trump 53, up one from May. Ramaswamy, 11%, up six from May. You may have missed him, but that's because he's in third place now. Rob DeSantis, 10%, down 11 points from May. <laughs> Pence at six, Scott at three, Haley three, Christy two, Suarez, the mayor of Miami at 1%. He's already talking about dropping out of the race. Well, 1%, I can't imagine why he'd stay. Stop it. Can't imagine why he got in. Mm. Good point. We also had the 538 average. And Trump has the largest advantage over Ron DeSantis ever right now. This came out yesterday. Trump, 53.7%. That's a plus 39.4% up on Ron DeSantis, who sits at 14.3. Ramaswamy at 7.5. Pence, 5.5. Haley, 3.6. Scott, 3.3. Christie, 2.6. Hutchinson at 0.6%. And Burgum at 0.5. Are any of the actual, like, fake illegitimate polls that have been, you know, claiming he was doing a lot better, have they they tanked him as well? Mm. 
No. Donald Trump either uh, in the ones that get put out by. No, like, no, I meant DeSantis, like the ones that are favorable for DeSantis and stuff like that. They sh- still show Trump with a lead, but his lead is not increasing. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And, and Ron DeSantis is still um, up on the rest of the field, which just isn't the case. When you talk about South Carolina, Nikki Haley has tied him there. New Hampshire, Chris Christie has tied Ron DeSantis there. And Vivek Ramaswamy has passed him in, in a lot of the national polls. Now the second place holder there. I'm um, looking back to the uh, Republican primary polling trends. Head-to-head matchup, like Noah was just asking about. This is going back from December of 22. Donald Trump 40, DeSantis 35. March, Trump 42, DeSantis 29. April, Trump 46, DeSantis 26. May, Trump 52, DeSantis 21. August, Trump 53, Ramaswamy 11. And again, DeSantis at 10. So some big shifts ahead of the big weekend at the Iowa State Fair as all the candidates, except Chris Christie, who we found out last week is an enjoyer of diner pancakes in New Hampshire. He'll be staying there and doing a, a town hall with a local ABC affiliate, but the entirety of the rest of the field will be out in Iowa this weekend at the state fair. Jim, what are you hoping to see besides Trump dominance at the fair this week? Is it going to be like a realization for a lot of these other candidates in the race when you see the amount of people that Donald Trump is about to attract and, and already some of the candidates there who are having tens of supporters show up at their events? Yeah, you're going to see a lot of that. And uh, but my favorite thing about when they go to the fair is to watch them try to wear casual clothing <laughs> and not look uncomfortable and then eating food that you know they never want to eat. The, the fried Snickers dog or the deep fried turkey leg or something like that. Uh, to watch these folks do that is always really hilarious. I think what's interesting is that Trump will show up in his suit, probably a red tie, and will just be Trump. And these other guys are going to try to be something they're not. and It's going to look really, really awkward. I just wish that the great white whale of New Jersey was going to be making the trip out there so we could see him eat uh, basically what he normally eats on a daily basis. Everything on the table? D- don't you call Everything him... Everything in the buffet line. Don't Ooh. you call him a fat pig? That We don't oh, do no. that. that no, nice. no, we would never call him a fat pig. Mm, I, that, that's we, we have to take the high road. I didn't call him a fat pig. I called him the great white whale of New Jersey. Yeah. The other thing, though, is you know he's never going to be president, but I hear rumors that he's going to start dating Lizzo. So I'm pretty excited about that. You know, there's a there's well a, that'll have a slimming effect. People have referred to him as White Lizzo. I like that White Lizzo. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, that's really funny. I'm going to steal that for later. But that's from. Uh, the, I think the yeah, man, the Joe I mean, the Maninino podcast. He wants to do a little collab with us. Oh, I want to also announce for our listeners. I would almost say Light Lizzo. Maybe not white, but light. Like because he's she would kind of eclipse him. I think. That's true. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how the uh, dynamics of eclipses work. Mm. So a couple programming notes. Actually, just one. We're going to appear on the Monica Crowley podcast next week on Tuesday. Uh, she teased us at the back end of her show yesterday, and we are really excited to joining her and getting to uh, get familiar with her listenership. Monica was great when she came on the show. She's going to be back with us at some point in September, and we're always excited to have her. I do want to stay in this thread because... You know, coming out of the polls and talking about the rest of the race and how it's shaping up ahead of the Iowa State Fair this weekend, the historical downfall of Ron DeSantis. I mean, you could look at it from anything and everything. We've already touched on the fact that he is completely unaware of how vile his online campaign team has been throughout the entirety of this primary cycle. I don't know if I believe that 100%, but that's what both him and Casey DeSantis have said in interviews and how disgusting all of those people are. And then you have him formulating his entire campaign staff out of people who either were never America first and said they were just to, you know, have a grift off of 
being famous or, or you know, being an impactful figure in the Trump movement or people who weren't cutting it in America first. And when Donald Trump trimmed the fat, he got rid of some of the people and they're super bitter and they went over and helped shape his campaign team, which I think is another absolute disaster of a way to look at. I mean, how do you run in a Republican primary when you know, let's just say at least 80% of the field is America first and, and pretty much a Trump voter and your only shtick is, is that you're Ron DeSantis? So, I mean, the Trump without Trumpism, I never really believed that. Mm. Running to the right of Trump, that hasn't worked out well for anybody. Nope. And, you know, you just look at, it's hard to survive in this long of a cycle to continually say the same things. We've combated the left and defeated wokeism in the free state of Florida. And it's just like, and? We're going to shut down the border and we're going to use the military to stop cartels. Go on. I've heard that before. Mm -hmm. Great. And then as soon as you start to call him out on these non-policy-driven talking points, his online campaign team just goes out there and says, well, how, how much of the wall is Mexico paid for, and how much of it did Donald Trump build? And it's like, first of all, you don't understand how the government works. That's probably why Donald Trump didn't want to give you a job in a future administration. Nope. Second of all, we've already highlighted on the show that both the Department of Homeland Security and CBP have a commemorative 450-mile marker for amount of wall that Donald Trump finished in Phase 1. He finished another 62 miles in Phase 2. I'm actually surprised they put that up. I agree. And then Donald Trump actually addressed the Mexico paying for the wall, saying that it wasn't cheap to have over 20,000 Mexican military officials uh, patrolling their side of the border for nearly a year to stop the migrant crisis and essentially help create the Remain in Mexico policy. Yeah. So, I mean, those people didn't get stationed on the border everywhere from Juarez to San Diego and work for free. So they might have not as been as inclined to be writing checks to the U.S. federal government for the physical wall that was going up, but they did spend a pretty penny on having over 20,000 troops lined up there. Jim, when, when you hear these narratives, how this race has shaped up and how the, the DeSantis campaign will be looked at in history as like, I mean, there's going to be Walkers and Jeb Bushes and Ted Cruz's, but I think we'll talk about them less moving forward and more about what happened to Ron DeSantis because he did have a lot of stock going in uh, on face value, but as people started to pull it back, even down to a lot of his groundbreaking policies, which eventually just wound up in court and never wind up happening, uh, he seemed to have been a lot of talking points and like a hero that rose in a time of need, let's just say during the pandemic, but we even know now that all the stuff that he claims to have done during the pandemic, like stopping Fauci and standing up to Joe Biden, never even really happened in places that were super populated, like the largest cities in Florida. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's going to be something that's going to be really fun to digest after the election is over. Go back and look at all this. You know, you know if you think about it, this has to be one of the greatest collapses in political history because he was expected to go in and, and seriously challenge Donald Trump. It was, like you said, it was Trump without the Trumpism, right? And, you know, he has been a fairly good governor on a lot of stuff. Like, you know, a hurricane knocks down a bridge, they get the bridge rebuilt down there in three, four days. He's going after some of these prosecutors in um, in Florida that are the Soros-backed prosecutors. Yep. So he, he's done some good stuff. The, the thing that's epic here, which separates him from someone like Bush, uh, Jeb Bush, is that Trump took down Jeb Bush. Ron DeSantis just never was able to get off the ground. He couldn't get out of his own damn way. And it goes all the way back to when he did his uh, announcement on whatever that Twitter thing was with Musk, and they couldn't get the couldn't get it to work. And so, you know, he's burnt through all of his money. He, he's hired the wrong people to, to advise him. 
and it's just been a mega collapse. And the one thing that he's insured himself of is that he won't be the VP selection. No. And he's probably ruined any future chance he has. His best thing to do now, quite frankly, is to drop out and hope people forget about the fact that he even started running for president in the first place. Not going to happen. Mm. No, it won't. Oh, I mean, we we're, we are very close with, with a lot of people on the Trump team. And, like, man, the list that these guys have collaborated, not only about the people that they're waiting to fire in Washington, D.C., but all these people that have stabbed, essentially, President Trump and the America First movement in the back. Like, they're, I mean, listen, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, people like that, they called Donald Trump. They asked for his blessing. He wished him best of luck. He's like, don't get pissed if I make a nickname about you. But this... This goes all the way back to 2019, and after Donald Trump didn't have it as an as successful midterm election in his first term, which is normal for all Republican presidents, usually the House flips at least. And, you know, the thing is, is that this billionaire international donor class started courting Ron DeSantis then, and it's been a downhill tumble since, and it, it's just a disaster. I saw Jeff Rowe and Chris Lasavito were throwing haymakers at each other last night, like putting up, you know, uh, places that they've worked, congressional win-loss records for people that they've consulted for, and, you know, Jeff Rowe's listed as the chief of staff and the campaign manager for the DeSantis team right now. Like, what the hell is going on over there? And you, you just can't talk about how bad and, and just inappropriately this campaign's been ran, and it just looks so much worse to watch it burn down in real time. You know, I saw, I watched the whole piece on Ruthless last night where they had a couple candidates in there. You know, they had Kim Reynolds and Nikki Haley, a couple other candidates and Ron DeSantis. And I'm listening to the Ron DeSantis piece and I'm like, I really want to just be able to hear if they're talking about anything other than nothing. And it's like, <laughs> they, they both come up there. And if you go back and listen to this town hall that they did in Iowa on Ruthless, like, everybody else talks normal. The crowd laughs and engages with all the other candidates, whether they like him or not. And Ron DeSantis and his wife gets up there. It's so awkward, right? They're in the yeah. microphone like, I'm Ron DeSantis and I'm running for president. Like, they both scream. And then all they do is, like, nervously talk about stopping at gas stations, having their kids on the trail, and wanting to be able to do the job that the American people think needs to get done. And that's it. And it's like, it's like I don't know if they're scared to be normal or they're just not normal. Well, and then everybody no, else that's watching is bored out of their mind. Yeah, yeah they're, they're not normal. And, and he is. The, the, the one thing that he had against him going into this is that he's just not a likable person, right? And he was able to overcome that when he ran for governor, and then he did a good job and got reelected in the landslide. But he's, you know, he, he's kind of like a John Kerry or an Al Gore. People just can't warm up to the guy because of the way his personality is. Um, you know, the only thing I can say about the people that he's surrounded himself with is, I, I, you know, I bet you Steve Cortez is wishing he'd got his money up front. Sure. <laughs> you know, we should have asked Kingsley how things are going with her and dad. <laughs> but, no, she said Thanksgiving should be interesting this year. You know, I would, the, I would love to be at that Thanksgiving table dinner. They could sell tickets. Or dinner table, excuse me. And it's funny, too, because when, when you look at it, you know, this the way that this whole thing's shaking down, it's just it didn't have to be this way. And, and we've reached a point now where it is no return. And, you know, it's going to be ugly. I got a couple clips from DeSantis. Let's hear him basically not talking about anything in Iowa and, and just doing a whole bunch of head bobbling. Voters should focus on the substance. Well, first of all, it's not even clear to voters. They focus on substance. They don't care about the process. They care about the future of the country. And they want to see what you as president will do uh, to get this country going in a better direction. And so anytime you have an opportunity you know, to speak to a crowd here and take questions, to be at the fair, to do a debate, those are obviously great opportunities. And the more we're able to do that, uh, the better that, that we're able to do. And in Iowa, we've been able to you know, develop a following because we're showing up to people's 
those communities. And you got to earn this nomination oh. and you got to earn the presidency. Uh, nobody's entitled to it. And voters expect you to make your case. And that's the thing. There was some information that came out, some data regarding individual donors in the state of Iowa this week. And Ron DeSantis sits, even though they're on the 99 county tour of the state, which is normal for most, you know, big time candidates. He's at the lowest end of, of individual donors from the state of Iowa. It's like the message that he's portraying is not resonating with the people that are going to vote in the caucuses. It's just not. No, and you know, it kind of reminds me of that scene in Spinal Tap where they're interviewing Spinal Tap, and <laughs> the, the guy is like, your audience are getting, are getting smaller every year. And he says, no, they're getting more selective. And I think that's kind of what's going on with this sentence, right? He speak, he's trying to justify now why he's speaking to tens of people instead of tens of hundreds of people. And it's just not resonating with anybody. His, his message doesn't sing well in, in the Midwest. The people of Iowa are going to reject him. He may finish in second place in the Iowa caucus just because of having enough money to have a good ground game and, and name recognition. But he's done. He's absolutely done. Like I said, his, his smartest political move right now would be to get out of the race and pray people forget the fact that he was even in it. Yeah, and I can't say the same for the people that are surrounding him as well. I mean, to know that the consultants and how much money they're getting paid right now are the only people that are fueling a lot of these candidates to remain in the race. It's an absolute shame the way that Washington politics has come down to that and to run, like, essentially a fake primary underneath the real coronation of Donald And listen, if Donald Trump was up by, like, 5 points, 7 points, 9 points, 10 points, this would be a totally different conversation. But I keep trying to explain to our listenership, and not enough people are saying it. The mainstream media, the print press, and the international billionaire donor class wants you to forget that 74 million people came out three years ago and voted for Donald Trump. And that those voters no longer exist. Like, the number that he was able to garner was fake, and the 81 million votes that Joe Biden supposedly got was real. And when it comes down to it, they just think that all of these 74 million votes are now getting cut up and, and showered among all of these overqualified, long-standing establishment candidates that are running in the rest of the primary, and nothing could be further from the truth. I did say that I, I checked out the, the Ruthless Town Hall yesterday. I do want to play a segment from that DeSantis piece. Listen, if I'm being a biased I, I about it... I can't get into it. I can't get into that show. Listen, well, here's the thing. And, and I gonna, tried. No, you're right. And, and three out of the four guys don't like Donald Trump. There's one guy who stumps for Donald Trump on the show. I don't even know names-wise which one it is. But the, as soon as he starts talking about, like, legitimate things into, like, what's going on with Donald Trump, they all kind of softly push back on him because they don't want to have, like, a... Argument on the air. Yeah, and, and then but then they always segue into, yeah, well, you know, let's talk about how uh, the North Dakota governor won the week in this week's president. Who the fuck... At point six percent, saying that he won the week. I don't care if he said something cool. This guy's never going to hold an office other than the one he has right now. It's like the same thing when they want to say like you know, but but Ron DeSantis has had to overcome so much. He's on like his fourth, fifth reboot, and at some point he's just going to get his footing. No, he's fucking not, guys. I'm sorry to say it. It's not his fourth or fifth corn dog. Exactly. Well, and that's the thing. He spends a portion of the town hall talking about Wawa and Bucky's. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those things. And I believe Casey's, which is the famous Wawa-like stop where it's like one-stop shop and, you know, gas, food, and all that other stuff. Gas, food, and toilet. Food that'll give you gas. There you go. send you to the toilet. Hey, but, hey man, don't, don't the little Bucky's. Bucky's is awesome. I don't know if I've ever been to Bucky's. I'm a Wawa guy. I've, I've been, been to both. I've been, I think I've probably Bucky's, been to both. Yeah. I'm a Wawa. Well, Bucky's I mean, I, has I, a wall of beef jerky. A okay, yeah, I've definitely been there. Jerky. I think I've seen that. <laughs> 
Listen, Wawa makes the Thanksgiving hoagie. Can't beat it. Sorry. They, Thanksgiving hoagie? Yeah. I mean, they're known for, like, you can go in and get everything you need there, like a gallon of milk, gas, food. They have all the stuff that's, but they, it's like uh, going into Jersey Mike's. They slice all their meat right in front of you mm. and they put it on the semolina hoagie roll. But during the holidays, they have like the turkey, cranberry stuffing, gravy, hoagie. Man. So you're saying it's not like Subway where they just scowl at you while they. Actually, Subway has announced that starting next year, they're going to be slicing their own deli meats in front of the customers because it's so disgusting. Oh, actually, no. I think I saw, I think I saw, I was at forklift training. There happens to be a Subway on the compound. I think they were already slicing. And here's the thing. We start talking about Ron DeSantis and what he's professing on the campaign trail, and it's like they want us to get mesmerized by it. And we here just we want are to talk about anything but. Wawa Casey's and Bucky's right now. So let's, let's hear this clip from him, again, talking about how Donald Trump fears debating him in the presidential primary debate next week. There's a lot of talk about this debate. There's a lot of talk about whether or not the former president is going to show up or not. In the recesses of your mind, Governor DeSantis, do you think there is something about your argument that Donald Trump might be afraid of in not showing up? Look, you have to earn this nomination and you have to show up. You have to debate. You've got to be willing. You've got to be willing to answer questions. You've got to be willing to defend your record. And you've got to articulate a vision for the future. I'm proud of what we've done in Florida. Uh, If you look at when I came in to where we are now, uh, you know, we're leading the way on so many different things. And oh, by the way, we used to say Florida was a a swing state. Now people just assume it's a deep red state. That wasn't the case before I was there. So... But you also have to say, you know, why are you running? And I can tell you, you know, I'm running because this country's in decline. Simply oh. managing decline isn't going to be acceptable. We have to reverse the decline. Oh. But doing that is not about me. It's about you and it's about the American people. It's that agenda that matters. And I, I may be a vessel for that. I'm a leader. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I'm running to do something. I'm not running to be somebody or because it's about me. So we've got to have an agenda that's going to hold Biden accountable for his bad governance and his failures, but is also going to offer the American people uh, a positive way out of this mess. And I will do, do that. So first of all, let's just clarify. He did not answer the question on why they, he said, why do you think Donald Trump might be afraid to debate you? He didn't answer the question. He said, the presidency is not given to anybody. It must be earned. Secondly, was he not screaming way louder than the guys who were moderating the event? Well, he definitely doesn't know what the purpose of a microphone is because he, I think maybe he thought he had a megaphone or something that needed to shout through it. Secondly, I think there are more people in line at Wawa right now than we're at whatever <laughs> event he was speaking at because you could hear like the two people clapping and then his wife and the kids probably clapping in the back as well. And he kind of does that thing where it's like everything he says kind of has a question mark at the end of it. Yeah. I don't and who, know. What you and, mean. and that was and that was nobody on our channel that was going ooh at the beginning. That was that was there. <laughs> they told him to go back to Florida today when he got off the bus in Iowa. Nice. There was a couple hecklers there. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's sad because I think the only thing that I like to take away from that, you know, minute and a half piece there is when he 
tries to highlight the stuff that he was able to accomplish in Florida. And for the things that actually got done, good for him. I mean, there are probably still people in Florida that like him a lot and are you know on board and they want their governor to be the president. But I also see a lot of people in our comments on social medias recently. There was someone last night that sticks out in my mind now that you mentioned that, Noah. They're like, I voted for this guy twice. To, to be governor. I, I have no idea who he was, and now I absolutely hate his guts. Oh, wow. Because I guess that's just the people that see R at the top of the ticket and they vote for it. And, you yeah. know, I, I thought that was a pretty eye-opening comment there. And it's like, these guys, like, even this podcast, Ruthless, you guys have helped make Ron DeSantis, like, one of the most <laughs> loathed <laughs> actors in all of politics. Because you guys hitched your wagon to him instead of being fair and open. Like, I like the fact that they did a La Savita interview. Chris is going to be in here soon. I mean, we're talking pretty frequently now. And uh, he's a great guy. And he's done a lot of stuff up on Capitol Hill working with the Senate and just been in D.C. politics for a long time. That's another thing. We don't give enough credit to the job. Donald Trump had no idea. His team had no idea what they were doing except, like, carrying the mantle of America first heading into their first primary. Mm -hmm. They had all that shit going on at the end of the 2020 cycle with the pandemic and the impeachment and trying to demonize them. The, the American public pushed back on that unequivocally. Yeah. And now we're here, and you've got a team of pros, whether it's Chong, La Savita, I mean, even Weiss and, and Brian Jack, they've gone so far outside of the box of running like a textbook re-election campaign to where you would think that Donald Trump was the president now and was beloved. Not that he's had to go through all this bullshit up to this point, including like all of the legal stuff. Uh, it, it, it seems to be a lot more professional. And, and listen... There's no question on what the policies are for America First. I think we can all agree uh, with that, Jim. Donald Trump has like a major platform page on his page on his uh, website that outlines just about every single thing that Agenda Forty Seven is about. No, absolutely, and you know he. It's interesting. He is speaking more and more about policy and about, and about other things in, in some of his speeches, which I think is really good. He's putting out things on True Social, talking about his policies and what he wants to do. Uh, like you said, his his people have already accumulated the list of uh, folks who will no longer be employed uh, shortly after the swearing-in ceremony, and uh, he he's he's running a very very good campaign right now. These indictments just continue to help them. But here's here's one more thing on DeSantis before I stop kicking the dead horse. Do you think when he gets into bed at night, he says to himself, "If only I had waited until 28 to to run. If he had done that, he would probably have been president." Yeah, but that's another thing. A lot of people all, all just assume that this organically grew like in the last eight months. Like Ron DeSantis just decided, like, I can no longer watch these unqualified, unprofessional people try to run this country anymore. I'm going to insert myself into this race, and I'm going to uh, assume the mantle of America first. Ron DeSantis has been planning this out with these Ken Griffin, Paul Singers, and everyone in between, Rupert Murdoch, Paul Ryan, you name it, Carl Rove, they say they don't fucking talk to each other. They're all full of shit uh, since 2019. So many people have provided receipts on that stuff, whether it be conversations, whether it be people that have left the DeSantis campaign, whether it be past consultants that have come and gone who have worked with the DeSantis team. They're all completely full of shit, and they've been planning this since at least the start of 2020. And here we are now, three years later, and his political career is all but essentially over. It doesn't matter how many times 
or shows or segments a day you want to put Ron DeSantis on Fox News, the American electorate will never accept him again. It's reflecting in the polls. Yeah, he's done. And I really can't wait for these primaries and caucuses to kick off because by the time the first five is over, I think it's going to be something historic and that we haven't seen in a really long time. Um, going to segue just a tiny bit. And in our last audio clip of the week, I know we touched on it on the top of the show. I see a lot of news coming across the wire right now as we're jumping out of the presidential primary and into what we're going to be doing on next week's show. We still got Andrew Kloster coming in in just a bit. And, uh, you know, I saw Andrew McCarthy was talking on Fox News just now about the Hunter Biden investigation. So just to get everybody prepared and ready to roll into the weekend with it, let's hear it. The same question. Now that we have this special counsel probe ongoing, how is that going to intersect or impact the separate but ongoing congressional investigation into Hunter Biden? Jillian, this is a sham. There is no special counsel investigation and there is no Biden investigation. The special counsel regulations, what makes a special counsel special is that you're a lawyer who's brought in from outside the United States government, not just outside the Justice Department, outside the government. This U.S. attorney uh, is being appointed, notwithstanding that he is an attorney who's a top official in the Biden Justice Department, and Garland made clear is going to remain a top <laughs> official in the Biden Justice Department. This is the Biden Justice Department's vehicle for maintaining control of an investigation that they are not pursuing. They've had the case for five years. They've never indicted it. They're strategically allowing the statute of limitations to run to the point that the 2014 and 2015 conduct, which covers most of the $21 million that the congressional investigation report showed this week, that's already time barred. And it's time barred because David Weiss himself decided to let those charges die rather than bring an indictment. They're not doing anything that you would do if there was an actual investigation, and he can't be a special counsel because he's inside the government, and the point of having a special counsel is to bring in someone from outside the government who we can trust to do a credible investigation. Seems fair. What do you guys think? I agree. Oh! <laughs> Listen, Jim, this has been great having you guest host with us today. Noah's going to be out of the office all week again next week, much to my dismay. But we'll have the CEO of My Patriot Cigars, Alan Jacoby, in here with us. Nice. But, Jim, we want to be able to direct everyone who's not already following you to do so. Any websites, articles, you name it, we'll link it in the show description today. Yeah, please watch me every Friday night on Tipping Point with Kara McKinney, where I tell you why everything is absolutely 100% stupid. Uh, follow me on Twitter or X or whatever it's called today at Jim6555. And you can check out my latest article about why the left hates free speech on American greatness right now. One other thing I'd like to say is, is guys, the uh, that, that fire in Hawaii was absolutely devastating. The town of Lahaina is actually gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two really good charities out there that, that I've given to, and I'd encourage everybody to do it. The Aloha United Way and the Hawaiian Salvation Army, they're mm-hmm. helping folks out. But uh, anything you can do there because that industry is going to be down for a long, long time as they try to rebuild that town and the rest of the island. No, those are great points and and, and two great charities. We'll live link those in the show description today as well, Jim. It was great sitting down with you and having you co-host today. Noah, it was great having you in the studio for at least one segment. I think I figured something out Hmm. for the X thing Mm -hmm. because we don't know if it's like tweeting or whatever. So scissor me on X. Oh, scissor me timbers. 
Guys, it's been a blast. We're getting ready to jump in with Andrew Costa right now. But before we do that, let's check in one more time with one of our partners. Friends, I want to take a minute and talk to you about cigars. Whether you're on the golf course, fishing on the lake, or doing some yard work around the house, our friend Alan has got you covered. He's launched the Patriot Cigar Company. The tobacco is handpicked in the fields of Nicaragua, right next to where Mike Lindell picks his coffee beans. Cigars are hand-rolled each three years. If you're going to promo code STAKE here, you're going to get 15% off your total order. Every order over $100, free shipping, and a $10 e-gift card is included with every purchase. MyPatriotCigars.com, that's MyPatriotCigars.com, a premium smoke for freedom-loving patriots. All right, joining us next on the show today, this big Friday edition of Steak for Breakfast. He's a former Trump White House attorney, one of our great friends. It's been a little bit of a little long time since he's been back, but we're always happy when Andrew Kloster could come on the show. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being with you again. Listen, I reached out to you yesterday, kind of a late addition to the show. We had the lineup, everything all set, but then I saw this great piece you did on Steve Bannon's War Room yesterday where you were talking about uncovering this 2020 uh, you know, fraud into the election and the Michigan voter scandal there. I want you to be able to unpack it a little bit for our listenership. We try to cover this stuff on the show the best we can, but I think when we talk to the experts, people who have been on the ground or work directly with it, we can kind of get a better narrative for our listenership. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to break it down. So... You know, I have been involved with a lot of election law issues. I've kind of dabbled in it. I, you know, our base is really hot on this stuff. And I always try to be very serious about what I do. And so I don't like to say, make crazy claims. But when I saw this tweet uh, based on a Gateway Pundit report over the, uh, you know, a couple days ago, I retweeted it and said, look, this is absolutely true. And I can confirm all of it because I was there, basically. And so what Gateway Pundit found was they said that they've been looking at sort of a dark money network and uh, an issue with voter fraud in Michigan, in Muskegon County, Michigan. So back in October of 2020, you know, I was dual hatting, I was in the White House as an associate director for presidential personnel under Johnny McEntee. And I was also, at the time, the deputy later the acting general counsel at uh, the Office of Personal Management. So that's an agency. So I'm doing a couple different jobs. Um, but I also love to be a bit of a fixer, and I'm kind of all over the place. And, you know, in my in that capacity, I got noticed that there was a, you know, a law enforcement official, senior, old-timer, doesn't make stuff up, you know, very bread-and-butter cop. Everybody has one in the family or knows one just a guy who does his job. And he said, look, we had this incident occur in Muskegon County and someone call me. So I called around, spoke with several different folks in law enforcement and around in Michigan and basically confirmed that there was a lot of smoke on this election fraud issue. So there was a woman parked outside of a ballot drop box in Muskegon County. She's loitering. She's stuffing it or something like that, but she gets picked up and arrested, totally probable cause. What are you doing, lady? And she basically spills the beans. She's a dam operative. She's got like 7,000 ballots. Something shady's going on. Now, they release the woman because it was a junior guy who was on duty at the time. They release her on her own recognizance, don't actually book her, but they take her statement. And she goes back to Detroit, which is where she's from, which is, uh, you know, I don't know, an hour away. It's, you know, you're out in the, red suburbs she's a dem operative from blue detroit she goes back to detroit and then when the senior guy comes in he goes look you've got this woman dead to rights you should have arrested her you should have 
processed or you should have called me. Um, so let's get an extradition from Detroit. Let's have Detroit PD pick her up and ship her back to us and we can actually process this. Um, Detroit PD did not process the extradition order. You know, I don't have the access to the internals, so I assume they did what they said that they did. Um, but Detroit didn't pick her up. The woman ends up getting protected, goes off on the land. Pardon me. And then, um, you know, uh, my understanding at that point is Benson gets involved. Other people get involved. There's political pressure being put down, which is, you know, don't look into this. So to me, the real story is uh, both the public corruption aspect, uh, that this was a legit probable cause. Something happened here. It was covered up by local dam operatives and the machine in Michigan. And when I raised the issue uh, internally in the White House and to DOJ, there was a shrugging and screaming and, 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 and don't look into this. So really, that's the story. So whenever uh, we get gaslit a lot on the right, they say yeah. things like, oh, look at all these courts said there was no voter fraud. Well, none of those decisions were on the merits. They were a lot of them were poorly litigated. Sometimes there's no remedy. Well, there was no voter fraud because there were no reports of voter fraud. Well, again, there have been a lot of cover-ups and people covering their eyes and ears. So at the end of the day, we don't have a handle on our election system. When I helped run the election investigation for Gableman, we teed up a, a bunch of good lawsuits uh, just to get access to data. There were lawsuits about is the state allowed, the legislature allowed to get data from the counties on elections. We had really great lawsuits teed up uh, from our subpoenas. And then, you know, Robin Voss out there dismisses the lawsuits um, because he doesn't want anyone to be able to check under the hood because he's happy to have the machine make the state go blue. He's happy to have that because he still makes his money. He still get to cash out at some point. So uh, our side has been no help. And that's, you know, here I am, perennial rain cloud. You're not a perennial rain cloud. You're a ray of sunshine here on Steak for Breakfast. I just want to clarify it now. The analogy would be if someone stuffs a ballot box in the middle of the suburbs and nobody hears it, there's no voter fraud, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or if somebody hears it and reports it but later gets bought out, uh, didn't happen either. <laughs> I hate when that happens. <laughs> so, listen, Lord. listen. We, we saw the 2020 presidential election, how it went down. Last time you were on the show, you definitely highlighted how there's a lot of gaslighting and you only like to go to where the facts can lead you. I think that's why a lot of people, you know, look at you as a trusted source of someone who's really taken a look at the way voter fraud has worked around this country. The Time Magazine article kind of shapes it up there with ballot harvesting and sucker bucks and drop boxes and people that are working in labor unions and teacher unions and the mainstream media across the country all collaborating together. I did see last week, and I don't know if you saw this, hopefully not because you, I, I don't know if you're a fan of MSNBC, but they had a Sunday morning panel on and, and a long time, you know, well-respected Democrat strategist, Doris Kearns Goodwin, she actually went off uh, towards the end of the segment and said the quiet part out loud, like a lot of people are saying now, if Donald Trump isn't convicted in court, as they're trying to do to him now, then it's going to take organizing the entire country behind the scenes at all levels so he cannot win an election moving forward. She said that on MSNBC last week, and that's a quote. And to think that people just are going to walk away from Joe Biden getting 81 million votes in 2020 and, and calling it 100 percent absolute and pure and, and think that they're going to roll into the next election and have 60 million people vote for whoever is the Democrat candidate and everything's normal. It's like they, they no longer can do that. They have to be able to operate at these ridiculous numbers and they're going to do anything it takes to get there. Can you at least agree with that point that no matter what, they're going to do whatever it takes to stop Donald Trump from winning back the presidency? I, I think we already saw that. I mean, I think that's what Russiagate was. I think that's what the Mueller probe was. I think that's what COVID was. Um, you know, I've met 
Doris Kranger Goodwin a couple times. She's an author, uh, but it just goes to show you, you know, this is how these people think. They're yeah. willing to go to the mattresses. They're willing to use all the tools at their disposal. And, you know, we control one of the houses of Congress. We could be doing stuff. We could be saying no, but we're not going to be saying no. I mean, that's just how stuff works. So, you know, I find that all very disappointing. They are definitely going to bust out all the stops. But I think there are things that we can do on our side, too. Donald Trump has it exactly right when he said we need the largest ballot harvesting operation sure. in history. You know, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, right? And we've done that time and time again. When I, you know, 2016, you know, the voters overwhelmed the system. 2020, the system fought back and we were flat-footed. 2022, we did a little bit better, but again, the RNC fell a little bit short. 2024, we really need to damn well be rowing in the same direction. I don't want any of this infighting. You know, in 2016, Trump won on the back of the voters. In 2020, uh, to the extent that he lost, it was because his own side I thought in 2020 we'd have the advantage of the RNC and the institutional apparatus being on his side because it wasn't there in 2016 and it wasn't there in 2020 and it better damn well be there in 2024 or, you know, I'm tearing up my party card or whatever. So well, I'm going to be asking Ronald McDaniel next Friday. She surprisingly has agreed to come on the show and, uh, we're going to get through all the cool questions, like ta tell us about Bank Your Vote and how the primary looks. And then we're going to – I want to ask her, like, everything from are – we, are we getting the full and, and unrelentless power of the RNC behind the eventual candidate? It looks like it's going to be Donald Trump, and are you willing to defend that man all the way up to and including legally through this next election cycle? Because if that's what the Dems want to run because they have no campaign platform to run – listen, Bidenomics versus anything that Trump brings to the table is not uh, a winnable battle for the Democrats. So they're going to play lawfare. Are we willing to play lawfare back? And it's going to be interesting to see what she says. Andrew, one thing, though, you know, someone who's seen the inside of a courtroom, someone that knows his way around the legal system as well. Now, you see Donald Trump and these cases, how they're shaping up against him. And you talk about all these cases back in the fallout from 2020 that didn't find legal standing in the courtroom. Have we opened the door or the Pandora's box of the opportunity of Donald Trump being able to shed the light on some of these cases, at least, where there were actual instances of voter fraud and what went into formulating his opinion on whether or not he thought he lost the election, especially in the January 6th case? The answer is yes. There was a lot of mismanagement when I was there in the Trump administration. It was neglect. It was hostility. It was bush holdovers. Uh, I was working under Chow for a time, very hostile to the president's agenda, um, Mitch McConnell as well. Um, so there was a lot of mismanagement that could be done with better political management on behalf of Trump. And if there's good management and communications channels, you can you can shed the light on a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, me raising the flag on this Muskegon, Michigan issue, all it would have taken would have been an attorney general who gave a damn, a an associate attorney general who gave a damn, a White House counsel who gave a damn. I mean, there were 10 different places where if you just had one person who gave a damn, they could assign one person to make a phone call. Yeah, it's just, it, it's not terribly difficult to get things done, but all the inertia on our side is to do nothing because it's easier to cash out as a Republican in D.C. in the swamp if you play nice. Sure. That goes for attorneys all the way up to, like you mentioned, House members. I mean, there's like quite a few good ones who are fighting on behalf of America first. We all know who yeah. they are. But then there's 
dozens, if not more, who just simply go through election cycles and be like, well, I'm in a pretty red area. It's going to be good to, like, you know, vote for whatever everybody else wants Potted to vote plants. for. Yeah. And it kills me because <laughs> leadership makes sure that our worst Republicans are in the deepest red districts, typically. Well, let me rephrase that last question I asked you. So as Donald Trump goes through the January 6th proceedings now, right, the special counsel and the Jack Smith, so it's, it's, it's a vague interpretation case regarding the First Amendment. Basically, Jack Smith wants to try Donald Trump for formulating his opinion based off the people that he uh, listened to instead of the ones that the Justice Department feel he should have listened to because there were, there were people telling him different things. And Donald Trump, he felt like he lost the election. There were people there telling him he lost the election, but the people who told him he didn't lose the election were the ones that they formulated this case off of now because there are instances of voter fraud let's just say for example like this michigan one let if we can enter something like this into the courtroom and let's just say hypothetically that this is something that you know the people around donald trump helped him formulate his opinion on that the election was rigged and stolen against him uh does it does it allow the american public to finally see these claims and allegations that he's been making that the rest of the media demonizes him for for the last three years yeah, I mean, we've never had a merits adjudication on fraud. The trouble is, for the average American, you talk about losing the election like it's one event. You got to remember, it's a very complicated situation. There's a county returning account to a central count. There's the suburbs and then the city and then the municipality. And then they add it together and they come up with a count and they certify to a board. And by the way, it depends on state by state. So what do you mean lose the election? I mean, there's 40 different things. And then... The state certifies a slate of electors, but what if there's an internal dispute and then the slate of electors meets and then they certify to, what is it, the archives or whatever, or I'm, for, I'm forgetting who does that. And then they, uh, you know, and then the vice president counts them. And so all of this is to say there's no one point where you lose the election. Uh, you know, it's not over till the new president is sworn in. Right. I think that was Trump's good instinct. I think that was the people's instinct. I'm always reminded of how did John C. Calhoun's father get his district in South Carolina as a state legislator? Uh, he didn't have representation, so he took a bunch of guns and a posse, went to the state legislature and said, give us a new district, and they did. I mean, frankly, uh, there are no rules. It's the Wild West in a lot of this stuff, and it should be delegated to the states, to the county clerks. I would tell every one of your listeners, get involved in local politics, not just as a watcher, but get as a, as a clerk. Get your butt in there. I mean, that's what my grandmother did in Chicago, um, you know, bastion of Republicanism. Uh, <laughs> but she was a Republican in Cook County. But, uh, you know, get involved because your butt in that seat is hugely important. And uh, you need to win at every level. And uh, we need to take back at every level. That's what Reagan did. I mean, that tied the, the movement that he had inspired, you know, Phyllis Schlafly, inspired so many people just to come out of the woodwork that, you know, had kids that just went off to college. Okay, I'm going to run for the education board or whatever. We need that now. And I think Trump needs to call for that too. But we do need a term two first. So let's get there. Let's get there. I mean, we need 200,000 precinct people across the country. And, you, you know, think about a quarter of the people that showed up on, on January 6th out of all those that sea of people. They all need to be involved throughout the country, helping out in their precincts, making sure these these votes that happen, whether it's at you know the school board and the precinct level, all the way up to federal elections are being ran better than they are now. I don't ever want to say the right way because I think we're a long way off from that. Andrew, this has been awesome seeing down with you today. You always bring a lot of good. It sounds like you want to make redistricting great again, too. I, I like that little uh, 
you know, historical reference you gave us, and, and I definitely want to point that out before we cut with you. Anything we could live link in the show description today and your social media? Oh, I guess my only real social media is uh, Twitter, AR Cluster, A R K L O S T E R. Um, other than that, I'm around. So very glad to be on again. And we'll be happy to have you back soon. This is a former Trump White House attorney, Mr. Andrew Cluster. Have a great weekend. You too. See you guys great friday edition of the show to end the week what do you think noah outstanding glad i made it at the end sad you're not going to be here next week well those forklifts aren't going to fork themselves if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and want to hear the now almost 270 other editions of the show you can find us across every downloadable podcasting platform we're on itunes spotify google podcast iheart podbean find the show subscribe to it rate it and review and then on our social medias twitter get our true social and instagram find the steak for breakfast podcast accounts follow them and hit the notification bell. We want to thank all of our great guests for coming down and helping make steak great again today. Namely, Jim Nels, who sat in as co-host, the National Committee woman for the D.C. Young Republicans, Kingsley Cortez, Republican strategist, Jim Paff, former Trump White House attorney, Andrew Kloster, and constitutional attorney who works for the 45th president of the United States, Mr. Jesse Benall. Guys, don't worry. We'll be back and have an absolute heater coming in. Hot on Tuesday. Brian Leib, now senatorial candidate in the great state of Nevada. Oh, dang. Dr. Jeffrey Ross Gunter. Theo Wold will all be here, and we're going to have a little bit of a Steak for Breakfast roundtable with New York Young Republican Club delegates, Paul Gracia and Gavin Wax. So on behalf of the entire pod team, I'm Roan. Noah? Later. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and take care. Where am I? You're in the Ministry of Defense. It's 1997. You've been cryogenically frozen for 30 years. Who are these people? The shouting is a temporary side effect of the unfreezing process. Yes, I'm having difficulty controlling the volume of my voice!